The Lord be with you. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Gracious and loving Father, we thank Thee as we gather in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, for the gift, power, and presence of Thy Holy Spirit. May Thy Holy Spirit fall upon us to open our hearts to the truth of Thy Holy Word and the biblical faith of Thy Holy Catholic Church. We pray Thee, O God, to help us to grow in our knowledge and love of Thee, and that our love for Thee and of the truth of Thy Word may overflow from our hearts into the hearts and lives of others. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Firstly, I'd like to say hello to uh, our followers um, on... The web, I uh, think, based uh, on the number of people that are physically present here, we may have more followers on the web to, uh, than we do uh, here in, in person. But uh, greetings to all of you. Um, for those of you who have been begging me to get notes up on the site, um, uh, please uh, take heart uh, in that Praveen Mutalik has asked me today once again for that, and he's going to be sending me a list of what is needed from the different um, uh, classes within the course, and I will be sending him that information, and he will be posting it. So, but greetings to all of you, and greetings to those of you who are here today. So, our topic for today is to look at the ministry, the ordained ministry, as it is received within this fellowship of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. So the ordained ministry, as it is received in this fellowship of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. I want to begin by saying, and this is the first bullet point for those who are following at home and those taking notes here, Anglicanism has no ordained ministry of its own. Anglicanism has no ordained ministry of its own. Sub-bullet point is this. Technically speaking, although these terms are used, there is no such thing as an Anglican bishop, Anglican priest, or Anglican deacon. Now, we know what these people mean when they say this, and sometimes uh, out of laziness and convenience, I use those terms as well. But technically speaking, because we have no ordained ministry of our own, there can be no such thing, no such animal as an Anglican priest. Anglicanism has never claimed its own ministry. We have, since the time of the English Reformation, prior to it and since, we have uh, maintained and proclaimed that our ministry is the ministry of Christ's holy Catholic Church. In other words, at the time of the English Reformation, we did not create an ordained ministry of the Anglican Church. We maintained the ordained ministry of the Church. So just as we have no scriptures of our own, you never hear anyone say, well, the Anglican scriptures say... 
right? We have no sacraments of our own. We've never claimed to have our own sacraments. We've never claimed to have our own scriptures. We've never claimed to have our own creeds. Note that we, unlike Lutherans and uh, Presbyterians, we don't have a confession per se. Why? Because we have never claimed a faith of our own. We maintain, profess, proclaim the faith of the undivided Catholic Church under Holy Scripture. So that is, we profess the creeds of the Catholic Church. We profess the, uh, to, and proclaim and celebrate the sacraments of the Catholic Church. We proclaim the uh, ministry and, and, and continue in the ministry of the Catholic Church. So Anglicanism has no faith of its own. It proclaims the Catholic faith under Holy Scripture. It has no sacraments of its own. It upholds and proclaims and celebrates the Catholic sacraments, which come from Holy Scripture. We have no creeds of our own, nor do we have an ordained ministry of our own. Therefore, if one is a bishop, priest, or deacon, they are a uh, bishop, priest, uh, or deacon in Christ's holy Catholic Church, serving in the Anglican Fellowship. Or you may have a Catholic priest who serves in the Roman Church, right? Or one that serves in the Orthodox Church, okay? Um, uh, but so technically speaking, if someone comes up to me and says, excuse me, Father, are you a Catholic priest? The answer is yes, because I'm either a Catholic priest or I'm a Protestant minister, Anglicanism has never claimed its own ministry. So I am a Catholic priest serving in the Anglican Communion. Those of you seeking uh, holy orders, get prepared when you're in a Roman Catholic gift shop. When people come up to you, excuse me, Father, will you bless this? And I say, uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Well, you're, you are a Catholic priest? Yes, I am. Serving in the Anglican Fellowship. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> What's that mean? I said, it means I'm only going to charge you $5 instead of 10 So, um, so, uh, so, bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, so that you know I'm not making this up, I'm going to quote the preface to the ordinal of 1662. Okay. The preface to the ordinal. The ordinal is the ordination rites, the liturgy for ordination. This is the preface to the ordination rites, the ordinal. It writes, It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture. It probably would be evident to women too, but they couldn't be sure about that, so they just said evident to all men. Okay, uh, It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and the ancient authors. Of whom are they speaking there? What's that? The fathers of the church. That's right. This is classic Anglicanism, my friends. What they're saying is we're about to make a statement that is, has a, a, of, of theological consequence. Therefore, we want to clearly establish it as Anglicans we want to clearly establish it, firstly, in what? Holy Scripture. And then secondly, in 
the tradition, the writings of the fathers in particular. So the preface to the ordinal, 1662 Book of Common Prayer says, It is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the Apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church. Bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay. I do want to point out that the Greek word for priest is presbyteros. Uh, it is often translated as presbyter in uh, English, often as elder in English, but it's where the word priest uh, comes from. And I do want to point out that the, the formularies of which the preface to the ordinal is one, the, well, the, the, ordin, the ordinal itself, including the preface, is one of the Anglican formularies, um, refers to uh, that particular order, presbyteros, as priests, okay? I'll sometimes get people that will say to me, oh, that's not Anglican. That's not Anglican to, to, to call them priests. That's, you, you know, that's a Roman thing or an Eastern Orthodox thing. And I'll say, well, is the 1662 uh, Book of Common Prayer Anglican? Well, of course. It's the Anglican prayer book throughout the world. You know, of course. Well, okay, well, that refers to that order as priests. It's not that the other is wrong. I'm just making the point that the term priest is perfectly Anglican. The order, however, is Catholic. So um, these orders since the Apostles' time have been these orders of ministers in Christ church, bishops, priests, and deacons. Which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he be first called, tried, examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same, and also by public prayer with imposition of hands, okay, capital I, capital H, by the way, as you'll see in the notes, were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority. That is that no one... No Protestant minister, and at the time of the English Reformation, this was an issue. There were some who were Protestant ministers um, from the Continental Reformation coming over to England and presiding at the Eucharist, and they weren't in the apostolic succession. So this had to be addressed, okay? Now, some uh, people will point out, well, you know, we used to allow, there was a time when Protestant ministers came and presided. That was true. What they failed to point out is that that practice was stopped and that it clearly was no, 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 no. One has to be in the apostolic succession. It goes on, the preface says, and therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in the Church of England. So see, these are orders that are being received and continued in the Church of England. They are not the orders of the creation of the Church of England. So we have no ministry, ordained ministry of our own. We have received the ordained ministry that has come down to us from the time of the apostles. It is that ministry 
that we have received um, uh, and um, continued. So, and therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in the Church of England, no man shall be accounted or taken to be a lawful bishop, priest, or deacon in the Church of England, or suffered to execute any of the said functions, meaning of a bishop, priest, or deacon, except he be called, tried, examined, and admitted thereunto, according to the form hereafter following, or hath had Episcopal consecration or ordination. Episcopal, from the word episcopus, meaning a bishop, not the Episcopal church, meaning a bishop. Um, so, they were consecrated a bishop by bishops who lawfully could pass this uh, gift on, uh, or they were ordained priests or deacons by such uh, bishops. So the preface to the ordinal makes it very clear, we do not have an ordained ministry of our own. We profess, celebrate, uh, and continue to manifest the ordained ministry of the church of every age from the time of the apostles to, we hope and pray, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, So there is no such thing as the Anglican ministry, just as there's no such thing as the Anglican faith. Um, you read the great reformers, they never professed that there was any such thing as the Anglican faith. They always said, we uphold the Catholic faith under Holy Scripture. Okay. In fact, as you've heard me say many times, the principle of the English Reformation, though related to the Continental Reformation, is distinct. The principle of the English Reformation is to return the church in England to the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority of Holy Scripture as God's Word written. That's the principle of the English Reformation. So, not the Roman Catholic faith. What was truly received by the whole Church, East and West, the undivided Catholic Church, that faith, that order, which includes the, the ministries, under the authority of Scripture. So Roman Catholics are Catholics who uh, understand their Catholicity through the lens of Rome. Orthodox Catholics are those who understand uh, their Catholicity through the lens with their communion with the ancient seas of the Eastern Church. Anglicans are Bible Catholics. We understand Catholicity through the lens of the Bible as God's Word. Okay. Any questions about the preface to the ordinal before we move on? This serves as your reminder that we need this uh, as a note to go, to go on. Now we're going to look, what is, as Anglicans, what are we going to look at first? Now that we have established that uh, we don't have a, an ordained ministry of our own, we're in, what are we going to look at first? As Anglicans. Yes, Jordan. Uh, yes, thank you. Scripture. The Holy Bible. Uh, in the early church, there was the threefold order of ministry right from the time of the apostles. There are many uh, ministries and gifts of the Spirit mentioned in Holy Scripture, but from the time of the apostles, three of them uh, emerged as uh, offices of the church of ordained ministers. At first, the threefold ministry looked like this. 
you had apostles. The twelve, then Judas takes his life, Matthias replaces him, and we see this very clearly in the Acts of the Apostles. After Judas dies, they, uh, they gather and they say, um, another must take his office. Uh, and they uh, gather there and they say that the office is that of apostle, and they gather all the disciples. Let us be clear as we look at this scripture in the Acts of the Apostles. All apostles are disciples, but not all disciples hold the office of apostle. This is something that's confused in, the, uh, in, in many Christian denominations. So they say, look, we, someone has to be chosen from among the disciples to take the office of apostle vacated by Judas. They put forward two men, uh, uh, Justice uh, and um, Matthias. Uh, Matthias uh, wins, <laughs> so to speak, and he is then admitted to the office of, of apostles. So all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles, at least in the sense of holding the office of the apostle. In one sense, we're all apostles with a small a, because that means to be sent, okay? That means to, to be sent. In fact, um, I will say that um, there's a misunderstanding by many. I'm not, I don't want to get into the argument over the ordination of women as bishops and priests today, um, uh, but a lot of people have, will look at um, some icons of Mary Magdalene, and it will say, an apostle to the apostles. And they say, ah, see, in the early church, she was considered an apostle. And it's very clear from the writings of the fathers when you, you, you read them and they referred to Mary Magdalene, she was a small a apostle. She was sent by the Lord to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus to those who hold the office of the apostles. Okay, but they, it's misunderstood. Jordan? In Acts, they also refer to Barnabas as an apostle. Is that also small a? Or no, no, no. That uh, that Barnabas. Once you, first, you have the restoration of the twelve. In the very, very beginning, it was important to maintain the number twelve. Why? I can't hear. Right. It was to show, especially while the church was still in Jerusalem before it spread into the world, beginning with the death, really, of Stephen, the first martyr, deacon, uh, by the way. Uh, of whom St. Paul participated in his death. I always thought it was a little ironic that uh, a, a future bishop was stoning a deacon. But anyway, um, uh, uh, um, uh, the number 12 was important while it was in Jerusalem in particular to show that the church is the continuation of Israel. It is the true Israel. It is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Uh, remember, Jesus himself says, Abraham saw my day, meaning my incarnation, and was glad. Okay? That is, he saw the fulfillment of the promise that was made to him uh, by witnessing the incarnation. Okay? Um, yeah? No. Uh, no. 
Yeah, those who hold the, 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 the office of, of apostle, and we'll see as we move through the scripture, we'll be able to put that picture together, okay? Um, so you had a threefold ministry. You had apostles, those holding the office. All apostles were disciples, not all disciples held the office of apostle. Then you had bishops slash priests, or presbyters, okay? Bishops slash priests, with really the bishop being um, really the kind of the chief priest in a particular parish, okay? So, uh, um, you know, in the model that we have here in the ancient church, I would be uh, a bishop because I would be the head priest. And then the other priests, you know, would we'd send out to the mission. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, Lord, 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 save the church. And um, so you had bishop priests, with the bishop really being the head priest uh, in that particular area. And then the third order of ministry, deacons. This is very clear. It's very biblical. It's very patristic. It is documented. When you hear a lot of Christians say, uh, we, we want to return to the faith and order of the apostolic church. And I say, well, good, then I'll see you Sunday. <laughs> because, you know, the, the, the ordained ministry was a threefold ministry right from the get-go, which we'll see today. Not Geico. Get-go. Okay. Um, with the death of the apostles, okay, so we're talking around the year 100 to 110, with the death of the last of the original 12 apostles, uh, and then subsequently Paul, Barnabas, you begin then to see um, a radical distinction take place between the bishops and the priests, with the bishops moving into the place of the apostles. So bishops are, in a special way, um, the successors to the apostles. So you have the threefold ministry, apostles, then bishop priests, then deacons. With the, with the death of the original apostles, you see this distinction made. This happens right at the end of the New Testament era, right at the uh, uh, end of the apostolic age, um, right around the year 100. And the threefold ministry that emerges out of Holy Scripture and is received by the whole church, East and West, from that point till the present day, is a threefold ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon. Michael Ramsey, um, former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, makes an incredible uh, argument on this, that um, this threefold ministry is the ministry of the New Testament. This is what is the ministry that came out of the New Testament, just as when we, the faith of the Nicene Creed is the faith of the, uh, of the, of the Scripture lifted off the page for you. Okay? So, uh, so now we're going to look at uh, some. Um, Acts of the Apostles, as I already mentioned, um, I didn't write down the, the exact reference I wish I had, um, but uh, very clear, Judas takes his life, his office is vacated. They say we must choose from among the, the, the disciples um, someone to take his office. In fact, they quote a prophecy from the Old Testament from the Psalms that in the King James Version actually says, let another take his bishopric. Okay. Um, I, I always thought when I was a kid, well, you know, let, let another take his, his, his bishop. And I said, well, maybe if we can get my rook up there or my horse, I can stop that. But anyway, 
A uh, little uh, chess reference there. Um, thank you, Father. I appreciate the laugh. Um, uh, I'll be here for the next few hours. Um, and so uh, let another take his office, King James, his bishopric. But it's very clear that this is the office of the apostles. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, verse 1 and 7, this is seen really as the ordination of the first deacons and the establishment within the life of the church in biblical times of the office of deacon. Now, all offices are found in the person of Jesus himself. For example, there's a place that refers to, and I wish I had the reference, maybe uh, someone could look it up for me, um, where Jesus himself is referred to as the bishop of our souls, um, okay? Um, but he's also uh, par excellence, the servant, which is what the Greek word for deacon means. Um, I came into this world not to be served, but to, to serve. Um, and of course, he is the high priest. So all orders find uh, their origin in the person of Christ himself. In fact, there's really only one deacon, and that's our Lord. And through a special grace, um, the, those who hold the office of deacon participate in, in him, in his ministry. There's really only one priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, those of us who unworthily, uh, but called um, despite our unworthiness and brokenness to that ministry, have received a special grace given through orders to participate in the priestly ministry of Christ. Um, same with bishop. So in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, 1 to 7, here we see the first calling of the of deacons. Now, some modern scholars will say, contemporary scholars will say, well, you know, we don't know actually that these were deacons as we understand deacons and so forth and so on. The Anglican answer to this is, look, this is how the early church fathers interpreted this passage. This was the establishment of the order of deacon. Also, uh, here, we, uh, when we look back at the ancient liturgies of ordination, uh, this is the passage cited for those becoming deacons. So you can see through those two things, both the, through the ancient liturgies and through the writings of the fathers, how they, the early church, understood these verses. So Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, 1 to 7. Anyone happen to find he's the bishop of our souls? Okay, I was just wondering. It's in there, trust me. It's in the New Testament. No, it's not in the Acts of the Apostles. That I know. Uh, it's, he's the, the shepherd. Uh, and first Peter. First Peter. 2.25. And what's it say? Bishop and shepherd of our souls. Yeah, uh, but are now. but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. Christ is applied in the Lord Jesus as the great guardian and superintendent of his. Yeah, superintendent, again, is the same word, episkopos, meaning bishop, by the way. Uh, superintendent, overseer, uh, is the word for bishop. What, what's the reference there? Uh, First Peter. First Peter. 2.25. Okay, now uh, Acts of the Apostles 6, 1-7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, they were increasing in number, good thing, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews. Okay, so these are the, the, the Hellenists. Uh, that is, the church is beginning to, to spread 
Um, uh, we're bringing in uh, proselyte Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, now receiving Christ and so forth. Um, uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, so here you have the twelve apostles summoning all disciples of Christ, the body, the church. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, we can only do so much in the day. We're trying to reach people for Jesus, and yet there's another part of of the ministry, isn't there? And that is literally reaching out to those who are in need. So uh, our focus as apostles will be on proclaiming the word of God and bringing uh, that spiritual food to people. Uh, But there will also be, we're going to raise up uh, persons who will minister then to the, the other needs of, of people. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude, that is the church, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, uh, Prochorus, and Nicener, and uh, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And I probably slaughtered some of those names, but anyway, six. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So they are being set apart through the laying on of hands by the apostles. Bless you, Mark. These they set before the apostles. So it wasn't just the whole community coming together and laying hands saying, you know, we commission you for this. These were set apart. They were put in front of the apostles who laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased makes me think of our presentation this morning. You know? The word of God increased, and faster than they were willing to handle. They had 3,000 souls one day that was brought. Right? And the word of God, and they, they, they handled it, so I think we'll be okay. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, meaning the Old Testament priests here, which is a different word, by the way, in the Greek from... Uh, the word presbyteros in the New Testament. Those are two different types of of priests. Um, Old Testament priests and and New Testament priests. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here we see in Acts of the Apostles these men being set aside, uh, hands being laid upon them by the apostles, and they were raised up. This is why, in, in particular... Um, uh, one of the ministries and, and, and focuses uh, of, of a deacon is to minister to those who are in need, to minister to the hungry, to the widow, to the sick, to the homebound, okay, within, within the church. In fact, in the early church, while the priest would come around from time to time to bring you communion and so forth, it was the deacon who was sent out to the sick 
it was the deacon. That's why I, I'm blessed in our church that one of our two deacons has taken up the uh, leading the ministry with, with another laywoman of our Father's table of feeding the hungry. She goes with me once a week with bread and Bibles and other things in onto the streets among those who are in need and those who are, are poor. Okay, um, Another one of our deacons heads the, the healing ministry and visiting the sick. You know, these are diaconal ministries. Okay? Unfortunately, and this is a whole nother soapbox for me, uh, we went, although the diaconate is very clearly established uh, as a biblical order of ministry and clearly upheld by the patristic authors and the ancient liturgies of the church and the ancient councils of the church, we, we kind of did away with it in the West. And, and even to the point where we have licensed, so many uh, uh, bishops have licensed lay people to do so many of the functions of the deacon that, you know, the diaconate almost became uh, unneeded, unnecessary, despite the fact that it's biblical. And some people have said to me, well, but if you bring back, you know, the deacons, you know, doing all, all of this, then that's going to, you know, do away with the ministry of the laity. And I say, well, that's not really true because there's a million ministries of the laity. But I, my question is this, how many of these people that are doing these functions actually have a call to the diaconate? Actually have a call to the diaconate, you know, and would never know it because they're simply licensed to, to do these things. The um, yes, um, but let me clarify. Um, so, until Vatican II and the Roman Catholic Church, there was no such thing as a lay Eucharistic minister. Vatican II had a big impact, of course, on Anglicanism as well. Um, one received Holy Communion from the ordained minister as living icons of Christ himself. Uh, and so you receive from the hand of Christ what you received was Christ and what you were becoming by receiving Christ was Christ. Um, and at first, they were called extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. In other words, they were, received special training and license to assist only in the absence of enough ordained ministers to give out Holy Communion. Well, what happened, of course, within a very short time is you now go to churches where the priest is sitting down, at, you know, or the bishop is sitting down, or the deacons are sitting down while the laity are giving out Holy Communion. Uh, this was never the, the practice in, in the church. And particularly if someone has in their heart a call to bring the gospel, to anoint, to bring communion to the sick and the homebound, to uh, minister to the people uh, who are poor and needy and hungry, uh, bro the brokenhearted, I would really wonder if they're actually truly called to the, the diaconate and, and, and don't know it. Um, and so um, in my last diocese before coming here, while laypersons were allowed with a special training and license by the bishop to assist 
with the chalice. We didn't have lay Eucharistic ministers. We had chalice bearers. Everything okay? Everything's fine. Okay. We had chalice bearers to help with numbers. You know, if we didn't, you know, if we only had, you know, limited number of clergy. But it was the clergy and especially the deacons who uh, um, brought the sacrament to the sick. Laypersons were not licensed to do that in my former diocese. So. Now, when, when you say laypersons were not licensed, it, so the bishop very formally allows you to do this. Yes, and, and unfortunately this is something I'm working on with our bishop because we've gotten, uh, you know, so far the other extreme, it's, you know, who would like to help, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and that's it. Um, and so, um, you know, the fact is, is that these are sacred duties, and at the very least, persons should be trained, understand that they are under a discipline uh, in taking on this ministry, that they are under authority, um, and that the authority uh, comes from the bishop as the, as the head of the family of the diocese. So, yeah, so we're working on that. Other questions, thoughts? John chapter 20, 19 to 23. Again, in the early church writings, um, and, and uh, this was seen as ordination by the risen Lord. Uh, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, uh, as one bishop I had said, that, that always sounded funny to him, as if they were French or something. Yeah, they're, they're all Jews, but, but they were hiding for fear of the Jews. should be fear of other Jews. But anyway, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So the Father, by his authority, has sent the Son into the world, and now the world, the, the Word, the Son, having received all authority from his Father, is now sending us into the world um, with his own authority. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained, which of course is the really the commissioning of the ministry of reconciliation. We are to reconcile the world to God in Christ. Okay, um, a lot of contemporary Protestant churches don't know what to do with this passage. So what? John twenty nineteen to twenty three. A lot of Protestants don't know what to do with this passage because it seems to be just another version of, of Pentecost. So they, you know, I've seen some scholars who will say, well, this is like, uh, like a, con- uh, a conception of Pentecost and then the full birth is on Pentecost itself. And, you know, this is like engagement and then the full marriage of Pentecost comes and, and uh, no, this is like ordination. That's how the early church fathers understood this. And this was the reading often used in the ancient liturgies for the consecration of bishops, um, by the way. 1 Timothy 4, 13-16, Paul speaking to Timothy here, he says, Till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, by the way, public reading of Scripture, 
the letters of the New Testament are written, and of course the, the, the Old Testament, for proclamation within the community. Okay. Attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Okay. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophetic utterance when the council of elders, that is the council of presbyteros, okay, the council of priests, and remember at this stage because there's apostles there, the bishops and priests are more interchangeable at, at, at this time, okay? Um, but he's saying, he refers to another place where he laid hands on them, but he's saying that this was joined in by the college of the, the presbyters, the priests, and this is what we still do to this day, by the way. When uh, a priest is ordained, the bishop lays hands, and the other priests come and join the bishop in that. Okay? Do not neglect the gift. So something has been given through the laying on of hands. It wasn't just an affirmation of God's call on Timothy's life. Something was given through the laying on of hands. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you, by prophetic utterance when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Practice these duties. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. First okay. Timothy chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Let the elders... I've said what that word is, presbyterus, who rule well, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we see here, right in the New Testament, the connection with the bishops and priests with preaching and teaching, particularly with the diaconate, with ministry to the poor, the hungry, the needy, okay? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is tre treading out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Someday when you go to the vestry or parish council uh, to get a raise, you can quote that, okay? Um, and uh, never admit any charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right there, I... Um, Someone may accuse me of eisegesis here, putting my own spin on it. But I'm going to say right there, Paul is expecting that there will be accusations brought against the leaders of the church by the kingdom of darkness. So he's saying, look, don't even give it heed because it's gossip unless it's brought forth by two or three witnesses. Then you don't assume it. You, do, you simply address it at that point. Okay. As for those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. I'm going to start doing that this Sunday, by the way. Just thought I'd warn you. Okay. In, don't laugh, Susie. You're first. Yeah, okay. Uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without favor. Do nothing from partiality. And then this, very important. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Okay, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Lay hands quickly on no man, uh, many translations say. Okay, why? Because it, something is imparted. 
as the scriptures say. It is a gift. A change is taking place. Okay? Um, and you don't want to be uh, ha- uh, hasty when, when doing this. Looking around, I should have read this. <laughs> Too late now, you know. Um, I'm just kidding. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. 2 Timothy 1, 6-7 Hence I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Now, some people have argued, despite the fact that we know from the writings of the early church fathers that the threefold order of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon, originally apostle, bishop, priest, deacon, but by the end of the apostolic age, bishop, priest, and deacon, that although there's clear evidence in the uh, writings of the fathers and even in the ancient liturgies and ordination rites of the ancient church, that, well, all this stuff with the laying out of hands, uh, nowhere does it come right out and say, um, what we mean by this is, colon, uh, all bishops, priests, and deacons must be ordained by bishops who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the apostles themselves who received it by the breath of, of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection, and this must be passed on. So they say, you know, this is a stretch uh, for the apostolic succession argument. And they say, yes, it's true, it's, it's there in the fathers and it develops. Um, but they say it's still not made clear for a few centuries. And someone remind me to go back to that argument. In fact, I'm pointing at you, Susie. Remind me that this hasn't, wasn't made clear. But yeah, it's there, but it's not solidified to later. Remind me about that. And uh, yeah, it's in the ancient liturgies. And yeah, it was the only uh, ordained ministry, the threefold order of ministry that was received by the whole church, East and West. And no other form of ordained ministry was ever truly known uh, until after the Protestant Reformation. But nowhere in the canon of Scripture does it clearly say, here is our doctrine of apostolic succession, colon. This is what is meant by the laying on of hands. To which I respond, right, you mean unlike the one that says, uh, this is how we define the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, colon. Or this is how we define the one person in two natures of Jesus Christ. You know, that one that's so clear in Scripture that says there is one person of Jesus Christ with two complete natures, fully God and fully man apart from sin, the two natures neither being divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the person nor confused to the point where you lose the distinction of the natures. And within the natures there are two wills. Right, that's in Third Timothy, I believe. Right? Or you mean the one that says the following books are the 27 books intended by God to be in the New Testament canon? That one? So the thing is, is that the same criteria we use for which books are the Bible and which uh, and our doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation and the, uh, and the, the profession of the creeds that we have received has to be the same one we apply to the, to the orders of ministry. And that is that these three, this, the threefold order of ministry, 
as well as the sacramental liturgical life of the church, as well as the canon of scripture, as well as the, the, the creeds, are all, were all professed and received by the whole church, east and west, when the church was one, as being uh, the right articulation of, that, of the faith and order for the church that came out of Holy Scripture. You know, and unfortunately, what people say is, well, yeah, it's clear about what books are the Bible, and yeah, we, we accept the creeds and the Trinity and all the, but the one, we don't accept that there's a threefold order of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon. Because that's not clear in Scripture. Yeah, unlike the other ones. Right? Do you, do, you, are you, do you follow my point here? And now I'm going to make the argument, in fact, the, the, while I believe, and we've, we've established this in, in other classes, that the doctrine of the Godhead in the, in the Holy Trinity is indeed what was revealed by God in the person of Christ and, and believed in the hearts of the apostles, the particular articulation that we have from the ancient creeds and councils was not solidified till 325-381 AD in the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. Now, the, the essence of the Trinitarian faith is there, but it's not, it's not articulated in the way we receive it today until 325-381 AD, Nicene-Constantinople. The canon of Scripture, though we can argue right from the apostolic age, is forming under the guidance of the Holy Spirit within the church. The actual um, list of the 27 books, exactly as we have them today, doesn't come until the 4th century. Okay? Um, so, however, this practice was, was, was right from the beginning. So before one letter of the New Testament was written, they were laying on hands to ordain. Before there was any clear development of the doctrine of the Trinity, which as I, I'm, I mean, I'm saying, it's apostolic, it's revealed by God, but the actual articulation doesn't come till later. So the argument would be, look, what we understand regarding the Trinity, what we understand regarding the person of Christ, our Christology, what we understand regarding the sacraments, and what creeds and councils we accept, these all come from the undivided Catholic Church within that great period of the first five centuries. Right. This was also the ordained ministry of the first five centuries. Okay. Um, so if you want to say, well, those passages that you just shared, as well as a few others that I didn't share, um, aren't really clear, you can make that argument really about anything. The fact is, is this is how it was received by the early church and by the whole church east and west as being the ministry that came out of God's word. So we're going to look at some of that. Clement of Rome, writing in... 90, uh, it, this says 95 AD, I think, not to be too precise, but I would say it's 96 AD, but we'll give or take a year. Um, Clement of Ro Rome wrote, the apostles knew that our Lord Jesus, our apostles knew, now by the way, this letter of Clement was so well received in the ancient church that in parts of the church, it was considered to be scripture. 
Okay, that's how well received this letter. It was written in 96 AD, ultimately didn't make the cut because Clement is writing as an apostle, as a, as a successor to the apostle, as a bishop, and not in the name of one of the original 12, which was part of the criteria. Okay, so, but it was so well received that it was considered in parts of the church to be the word of God. And he writes, the apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife for the office of bishop. For this reason, therefore, having received perfect foreknowledge, they appointed those who have already been mentioned and afterwards added the further provision that if they should die, why would they say if we should die? Because they weren't sure when the Lord would return, right? So they're saying if we die before he returns, that if they should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. Okay, so here we see, right in 96 AD, building upon the foundation of what I read to you in Scripture, that these ministries are not only biblical, but that it was meant, according to the tradition of the fathers, from the apostles who received it from Christ, that these should continue. Which brings us back to the preference to the ordinal that says that the, these are meant to continue within the church. Ignatius of Antioch, writing in 107 AD, they say 110 here, and I say 107. The only reason I'm pointing this, because it's only a year or two away, is for those, if I say 107 AD and then we post these notes, and the people who are listening and follow us online See, one, they'll, they'll, you know, so I'm just pointing out why they're seeing 110 instead of 107. So Ignatius of Antioch, he was um, uh, either the first or second, uh, uh, according to the ancient church, bishops in Antioch. Okay? Um, and he wrote seven letters to the church as he was on his way to be martyred in, in Rome. Okay? Uh, feast day, I believe, is October 17th. And he says, now he's writing in 107, so he's right at the end of the apostolic age, right at the end of the New Testament era, where literally we see the end of the apostles and that distinction emerging between bishops and priests, okay, so that the threefold ministry now is bishop, priests, and deacons. And he writes, you must all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father, and the presbytery as you would the apostles. Reverence the deacons as you would the command of God. Let no one do anything of concern to the church without the bishop. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist. This is 107 AD, folks. This is within the apostolic age, in the, the age of the New Testament. Okay? He's very clear here what the, the threefold order of ministry is. Bishop, priest, and deacons. And that all must be done with the consent of the bishop. And he's ta already talking about the validity of a Eucharist versus an invalid Eucharist. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which is celebrated by the bishop or by one whom he appoints that is, or has ordained. Wherever the bishop appears, let the people be there. Just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. 
by the way, is the first known reference we have anyway to the undivided church, the Church of the Apostles being referred to as the Catholic Church. It comes from 107 A.D. Uh, a lot of people think we make this stuff up and it probably happened in about the year uh, 1300 or something. Actually, the order of bishop, priest, and deacon is biblical and it's a, a clearly established by the end of the apostolic age. Okay, um, The idea of a valid Eucharist being one that's uh, in communion with the bishop. Okay, uh, Even the title, by the way, the Right Reverend Father, comes from uh, Ignatius of Antioch in referring to the bishop. So a lot of people think, well, that probably developed, you know, the, they made that stuff up, you know. Okay. Irenaeus, who um, died, I think, 202. So he's writing in the late 100s here. He writes, It is possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth to contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which has been made known throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who were instituted bishops by the apostles and their successors to our own times. What is he beginning to establish here? The succession, the apostolic line. Now, scholars will point out that initially they're doing it by the sea, that I was, or I've taken the sea that belonged S-E-E to, you know. But we, we see it developing here in very early on, okay? Men who neither knew nor taught anything like these heretics rave about, okay? And that's another important thing. Why is he beginning here to establish that this line makes us legitimate and connects us to the apostles who are connected to Jesus who comes from God because of heretics. And that goes to the point that I asked Deacon Susie to remind me of. And, and that is as far as um, people will argue, well, there's no clear statement in the, in the scripture, right? Or no clear statement, you know, here, even though they're alluding to it, remember, why, did the, why was the Nicene Creed written? in response to Arianism, in response to heretics. Why was the canon of Scripture clearly established, finally, in the 4th century? I think the first council was a minor council called Carthage. But anyway, uh, and the first father was Athanasius to list the 27 books exactly as we have it today. Because people were calling into question the legitimacy of certain books and whether other books should be counted as legitimate. In other words... The church only uh, became more definitive when they were forced to be so in response to heretics. Is everyone with me on that? And so we only see the development uh, 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 in articulation of the doctrine of apostolic succession develop in the church like any other doctrine or position on the order of the church in response to heretics. Again, the same criteria has to be applied, okay? Um, I, I knew a, 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 a bishop 
Um, I don't know if you know him, but I won't say who he is just in case and we're being recorded. Uh, an Orthodox bishop uh, uh, um, within Anglicanism who said to me, well, yeah, you know, in the teaching on apostolic succession, I mean, that's what we say. It goes all the way back to Christ and the apostles. But while there's a lot of proof that this may have been the case, there's no clear, ap- you know, clear historic proof. You know, so it may or may not. I said, right. Versus the clear proof uh, that uh, these books are the word of God. You, do, you see, do you see what I mean? You know, because nowhere does it say that these books are. You know, except within the church. It's a charismatic event within the life of the church that recognizes those books to be what they are, the word of God. Okay? Um, And, you know, so I'll say, you know, we also believe, just as we believe, that the gift of the Spirit has been maintained and celebrated and realized and lived out and expressed and handed on through the laying on of hands of bishops, going back to those bishops who received it from the apostles, who received the breath of the Spirit from Christ himself, just as we believe that, we also believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. But there's no way to prove that, right? And so, again, I'm making the argument that the same criteria has to apply to the ordained ministry. Now, before going on with Irenaeus, I want to point out one more thing, lest time runs out and I, and I haven't addressed this, too. And that is that for 1,500-plus years in the church, there was no ordained ministry outside of the threefold ministry of the undivided Catholic Church. So if you were to go back in time um, to the year 1500 or the year 1000 or the year 500 and say, now, if you do a lot of research, will you find little groups that rose up and did something? Yes. Or even parts of the church that did things for a while, but it wasn't received by the whole church as being the way it should be done? Yes. They did that in Corinth with baptizing people on behalf of the dead. Not a practice that was received by the whole church as being legitimate. Okay? Um, uh, so, um, what was the point I was making, though? See if you were listening. If you went back in time. Yeah, if you, thank you. If you went back in time. Thank you, Father. Um, uh, if you go back in time to the year 1500 or 1000 or 500, uh, or, you know, e- even earlier than that, and say, you know, look, I, yes, I, w- I want to go to uh, church this week, but I don't want to go to uh, a Catholic church. I don't want to go to a church where they have bishops, priests, or deacons. Where will, you, where will they be able to send you in the world? Nowhere. Nowhere. If you say, well, I want to go to church this week, but I, wanna go, I don't want to go to a place where they believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. I just want to go and praise God. Where can you go? Nowhere, right? I want to go to a church that doesn't profess the creeds or believe in the Trinity or that the Bible is the word of it. Nowhere, you, you get my point. This was the ordained ministry of the church. And what's exceptional about this, and, and I make this argument all the time, I think I stole it, by the way, from an Eastern Orthodox argument, but, um, uh, but I make this argument all the time and I find it exceptional, is that if you take a Christian from the year 400... Okay, and bring him forward in time to the present day and show him mainstream American Protestantism, 
he's not going to understand what he's experiencing. If you bring uh, that same Christian or a Christian from the same period from Rome and brought him to the Roman Catholic Church today and asked uh, and taught what the Roman Church teaching, there's going to be things that have been added that he doesn't understand. But if you bring a, a, uh, a man from the year 500 and you bring him forward to today, to Holy Trinity tomorrow, and you go down, this is a guy from the year 500 now, and you go down, what, cre- what councils do you accept? What creeds do you accept? What threefold ordinary ministry do you have? What's your liturgy look like? What sacraments do you celebrate? In the essence, though some of the wording may be different, right? In the essence, the church that we, he will experience tomorrow at 9 a.m. upstairs, especially because of the incense, by the way, is going to be exactly what he knows from the year 500. What we proclaim as Orthodox Anglicans is in direct continuity. And I don't believe that Rome or Protestantism can make that argument. Well, if you take the councils out of the argument, because we received the latter three as a working out of the first four too, but... But it would be similar to our argument. Yeah, it would be similar to our argument. Um, um, and, and, you know, I, I would say the reason I'm Anglican and not Eastern Orthodox because my allegiance is not to any particular tradition or denomination but to the faith, of the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority of Scripture as God's Word. That's where my loyalty is. So I really have two options, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or small o Orthodox Anglicanism. So why am I uh, Anglican? I would say that um, maybe not on paper, but in practice, Orthodox Anglicanism now um, has a a fuller identity as being biblical Catholicism um, than than Eastern Orthodoxy. But that's that's a whole other lecture. I think the biggest comeback from them would be, yeah, if you're so blessed by God, show me your recipe for baklava. You know, and then, you know, I think we lose at that point, you know. So if you have a child, what is that child, what denomination is that child? Uh, you're, you're not claiming you're Anglican, and you're not, you're not... A person is baptized into... The Church of Christ. They're not baptized an Anglican or a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox or a Presbyterian. Or they're baptized a Christian or they're baptized into the Catholic Church, the Church of Jesus, the Body of Christ. They worship, they live that out in a particular fellowship of the greater Catholic Church, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism or Anglicanism, or they live that out in a Protestant denomination, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Baptist, Etc. Etc. When you're baptized, you're baptized into the one Church of Jesus Christ. People will say to me all the time, "Oh, I was baptized a Presbyterian." There's only one problem with that statement. It's not true. <laughs> or I was baptized Anglican. It's not true. You're you're baptized into Christ and into His body, the Church called the Catholic Church. And then it's up to you to make a determination. Of 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 what expression in today's world do you think most fully expresses? that church. 
and Anglicanism has made the argument that the undivided Catholic Church with a big C, the historic Catholic Church, the undivided Catholic Church, um, that those traditions today that together would com comprise the undivided church, Catholic Church, would be those who have maintained the same orders of ministry, which we're talking today, bishop, priests, and deacons, ordained going back to Christ and the apostles, the same sacraments, the same uh, creeds um, and, and councils of the ancient church, basically the same faith of the undivided church, and then most of all, the same scriptures of the, of the undivided church. In that, you have three main groupings that fit into that, and that would be Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, which has added a lot to that, though, and then it was through innovation, and then Anglicanism. But we're Christians by baptism. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so I think that's important. You know, if, if someone from the year 500 were to go to, you know, uh, some independent Bible church, they're not going to recognize. There'll be some things, I, I hope, right? There'll be some things that are, are the same. But there's going to be a lot that they don't understand, right? When they say, well, what, what's your view on the sacraments? Well, we don't believe in sacraments. We believe in ordinances. And we don't believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And we don't believe that baptism actually communicates grace or brings someone into Christ. It's only by their statement of faith. Or we don't celebrate the Eucharist. Or we don't have bishop, priests, or deacons. The creeds, we believe most of what's in it, but we don't profess them. This Christian from the year 500 is not going to know what happened. And if they went to a Roman Catholic church, do you believe all that? Oh, yeah. But also, we believe that Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother, Anne, without the taint of original sin. And you have to believe that. Uh, and you also got to believe in this. And the Pope is also infallible. And, and, and they're, they're going to give him a creed he doesn't recognize either with the filioque, by the way. So, right, in purgatory and transubstantiation and on and on and on. They're not going to recognize that either. But bodily assumption, well, no, they'll, they'll know the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary from 500. It was not a dogma of the church. That's the issue. But it was the common pious belief of the church. Um, uh, certainly because Elijah, uh, by implication Moses, Enoch, was taken, and uh, the early church believed that. But they wouldn't understand it as being a dogma of the church. Um, but, you know, that's an important argument. So, okay, now looking at Irenaeus, who died in 202, so he's writing in the late 100s. He says, It is possible, then, for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth, so if you want to know the truth, here he's associating it with, with what he's about to articulate, to contemplate the tradition of the apostles. So it's not what I believe about Jesus. It's what has come down to us from the apostles of Christ? What's the apostolic faith that was received by the whole church, East and West, which is that which is Catholic, under the authority of the Bible, which is that which is evangelical? Okay. So to contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which has been made known throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who were instituted by bishops, instituted bishops by the apostles and their successors to our own times. Men who neither knew nor taught anything like these heretics rave about. For if the apostles had known hidden mysteries, which they taught to the elite secretly and apart from the rest, they would have handed them down especially to those very ones to whom they were committing the same self-churches. 
For surely they wished all those and their successors to be perfect and without reproach to whom they handed on their authority. Also from Irenaeus, it is necessary to obey those who are the presbyters, the priests in the church. Who here is on my parish council? I I just want to read that again to you. It is necessary to obey those who are the priests in the church. I just wanted to clarify that. Karen takes me way too serious. She's looking at me like, what does that mean? You know? Okay. What's that? Irenaeus, right? Yeah, to the treasurer. It's Irenaeus writing to the church. Yeah, against uh, heresies that had corrupted. So he writes, It is necessary to obey those who are the presbyters in the church. Those who, as we have shown, have succession from the apostles. Those who have received with the succession of the episcopate. So see how he differentiates those now? Because you're talking about 90 years, 80 years after the death of the last apostle. So he's talking about the priests who are in succession too, who with the episcopate have received the succession. So there's that distinction now. The sure charism, what's that mean? Yeah, the sure spiritual gift. Charism is, is a gift, charis, gift of the spirit. The sure charism of truth according to the good pleasure of the Father. But the rest who have no part in the primitive succession and assemble wheresoever they will, must be held in suspicion. Say that at an ecumenical gathering today of those who don't have the apostolic succession. Those of you who gather wherever it is that you gather, you know, should be held in suspicion. Okay. Yeah, probably not a good idea if you, next time you go to an ecumenical gathering. Let me quote Irenaeus to you. Okay. Um, Tertullian, one of the great minds of the early church, one of the great minds of the early church, some have said perhaps the greatest mind, uh, not received, he is received as a father, but not a saint, because in the end of his life, although some people would say that he was misunderstood, um, he, went a little, uh, he went a little off the rails in the, in the charismatic leaning to the point where if he, he, they claim that he believed, you know, what you hear a lot of, more extreme charismatics say today, if they receive a private revelation from the Holy Spirit, then it's, it's basically the word of God, you know, even if it's contrary, you know, to something else, which I always say, you know, the, the, the you, you know, you, even the Pope doesn't claim that level of infallibility, you know, these are the people that call you up and say at 4.30 in the morning, Father, the Holy Spirit told me that, uh, you, you know, the, the door is supposed to be blue instead of red. You know, if you don't do it, they leave the church because you've disobeyed God, you know. Okay. So, however, before that, um, Tertullian, perhaps one of the greatest minds, he writes, moreover, if there, let me see if I can get the exact year he's writing. Uh, this, so this says around 200. Moreover, if there be any heresies bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age, okay, so if there be any heresies bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age, so even if heretics are saying, well, our belief goes back to the time of the apostles as well, so that they might seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they were from the time of the apostles, we can say to them, 
Let them show the origin of their churches. Let them enroll the order of their bishops, running down in succession from the beginning, so that their first bishop shall have for author and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, who continued steadfast with the apostles. For this is the way in which the apostolic churches transmit their lists, like the church of the uh, Smyrnarians, which records that Polycarp was was placed there by John, like the church of the Romans, where Clement was ordained by Peter. In just the same way, the other churches display those whom they have as sprouts from the apostolic seed, having been established in the episcopate, that is the office of bishop, by the apostles. Let the heretics invent something like that. After their blasphemies, what could be unlawful for them? So you... (laughs) I love this early, these early writings. They're like so... T- these days we try to couch, you, you, you know, everything in such nice words. You know, they're like, well, you've lied so much, you might as well make this up now, you know? Although it does sound like the, the two parties, doesn't it, uh, the, of the race, uh, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, you've, you've seen that ad where we don't need to, to hammer each other. We can have an honest campaign. And they're shaking hands and the guy... Here's your hunk if you had an affair with Senators, you know, Carmen. How's that look? Looks great, you know. Okay. Um, what could be unlawful for them? But even if they should contrive it, they will accomplish nothing. For their doctrine itself, when compared with that of the apostles, will show by its own diversity and cr- contrariety that it has for its author neither an apostle nor an apostolic man. I, I, I like that. Well, I won't accept what you're proposing because it's not apostolic nor from an apostolic man. The apostles would not have differed among themselves in teaching, nor would an apostolic man, again meaning like Barnabas, Timothy, Titus, okay, have taught contrary to the apostles. Remember what Paul says to, is it Timothy or Titus? Um, remember what you have learned and from whom you have learned it. Okay, I think it's Timothy. Unless those who were taught by the apostles then preached otherwise, therefore they will be challenged to meet this test even by those churches which are much later date, for they are being established daily, and whose founder is not from among the apostles nor from among the apostolic men. For those which agree in the same faith are reckoned as apostolic on account of the blood ties in their doctrine. That is, also you have to hold the apostolic faith. Then let all heresies prove how they regard themselves as apostolic when they are challenged by our churches to meet either test. Okay, so even if you could say somehow you have the line, do you hold the faith of the... And so basically the argument he's making here in 200 AD was the one I just made about taking a man from 500 and bringing him to Holy Trinity or to St. Bridget's uh, tomorrow or to uh, Rutland, Vermont, All Saints tomorrow, is that that person in 500 is going to be able to, to, uh, to recognize the liturgy, the sacraments, the creeds, the faith, the scriptures, the order of ministry. 
okay, as he did from 500. But in fact, this I'm going on now with Tertullian, but in fact they are not apostolic, nor can they prove themselves to be what they are not. Neither are they received in peace and communion by the churches, which are in the way apostolic, since on account of their diverse belief, they are in no way apostolic. Okay. Clement of Alexandria, writing 190 to 210, different from Clement of Rome, who wrote in 96 AD. After the death of the tyrant, the apostle John came back again to Ephesus. The tyrant, I assume, is the emperor. Came back again to Ephesus from the island of Patmos, and upon being invited, he went even to the neighboring cities of the pagans here to appoint bishops, there to set in order whole churches, and there to ordain to the clerical estate such as were designated by the Spirit. I mean, 190 AD, folks, you know? This is amazing. This is amazing stuff. Then uh, an, another church father, F-I-R-M, firm, Ilian, or Firmilian, Firmilian, maybe? Firmilian of Caesarea. It's F-I-R and then million with one L. So Firmilian. But what is his error and how great his blindness, who says that the remission of sins can be given in the synagogues of the heretics, so the churches of heretics, and who does not remain on the foundation of the one church which was founded upon the rock by Christ can be learned from this, which Christ said to Peter alone, whatever things you shall bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, they shall be loosed in heaven. And by this again in the gospel, when Christ breathed upon the apostles alone, saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any man his sins, they shall be forgiven. And if you retain any man's sins, they shall be retained. Which, by the way, to this day is still what the bishop says. When Bishop Harvey ordained me almost two decades ago now, he laid his hands upon me and breathed upon me and said, Receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a priest in the church of God whose sins you, retain, you, and whose sins you remit are remitted and you know, be a faithful dispenser of the word of God and of his holy sacraments. Amen. Um, therefore, the power of forgiving sins was given to the apostles and to the churches which these men sent by Christ established and to the bishops who succeeded them by being ordained in their place. Writing to St. Cyprian in Carthage. Wow. Big stuff. All right. So, that, so we, we, we started with um, that we don't have our own ordained ministry in Anglicanism. There is no uh, Anglican ministry. We have the threefold order of ministry that has come down to us from the time of the apostles. We then looked at Holy Scripture in the, in the biblical foundation for the laying on of hands and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, we talked about the threefold order of ministry being that which came out of the Holy Scripture and was received by the whole church east and west. Uh, we then uh, looked at the writings of some of the early church fathers establishing this all within the first couple of centuries, uh, uh, first two and a half centuries of the church. So any, any questions uh, thus far? Jordan. Um, just as far as the 
Why exactly did they, I mean, I know there's a distinction, but they stopped calling them apostles and started calling them bishops, basically. Was it a, a generational thing? Did it have to do with being uh, ordained exactly by God himself? Because I did, I found in Acts where it does say the Holy Spirit set to set apart Barnabas and that kind of thing. But right. um, if Timothy and Titus were considered apostolic men, the apostles were the apostles. But usually referred to as bishops, uh, Timothy and Titus. Usually are, right? Yeah. Then, and it's clear then that, you know, Polycarp or whoever is, is a bishop. Bishop. Not an apostle. Right. A successor to the apostle. Okay. But that office, can, having moved into the place of apostle with the death of the apostles. But yeah, that, um, the word apostle is, the office of apostle has been received and manifested in the distinction of the office of bishop now. Um, uh, but yeah, I think the word apostle being reserved for the, the first 12 and then the few thereafter. The are few there, thereafter. Are there, besides Paul, Barnabas, uh, do we know of any? Or I can imagine it's not safe to presume that there were um, without some kind of proof. But do we know of Apostolic men, you mean? Yeah, that were actually called apostles and not successors to the apostles. No, I think Paul, maybe Barnabas, Matthias uh, is going to be it. Um, I think after that, you really do start to see the transition almost take place immediately. Um, certainly people like Mark, who were not one of the twelve, um, but or we're told was ordained a bishop and went and, and started the see in Alexandria. Um uh, so yeah, you know, and and you know, so, um, is, yeah. Luke is not. I I, I want to say I've heard people say the apostle Luke, but that's not true. No, Luke the uh, evangelist and physician, but not not apostle. And then, you know, Paul and Barnabas, who were set aside by the, the risen Lord and Barnabas, the Holy Spirit himself. And These were ordained by Jesus himself, you would say. And, and that's what causes them to be apostles? Yeah, he called them to, to start that foundation, yeah. And then upon that apostolic foundation, the rest of the church comes. Yeah. There's also, uh, which we didn't cover here because of time, places that say in Timothy in particular what a bishop should be, what a deacon should be, and you can look those up as well. Karen? Yeah, although right even before they died, though, this was already being established. Their successors, Timothy, Titus, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, and then others, Polycarp, who was ordained by John in Smyrna, for Smyrna. You, you know, so uh, Ignatius of Antioch uh, that we referenced, you know, so already, you know, it, it was there. It was there. Jordan. Um, it also says where we just read in John, and we do, we don't know the assumption is that you know that the risen lord did it but it's not it's not clarified in the in the scripture 
but the church is never called into question the apostolic lineage of those who trace back to Thomas, like the churches of the Far East, you, you know. Because I guess if he's listed in Acts, in the very, one of the very first things is he's listed among the twelve. So. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? All right, well then let, let's take a, a five-minute break, and then we will pick up looking. If we've done now in Anglican theology... We did scripture. We did tradition, the fathers. What's next? Formularies. The Anglican formularies are next. That's how Anglicans do theology. I, I want to point out uh, in, the, in, in the formularies, I'm first going to talk about the ordinal of 1662, which is one of the Anglican formularies. We're going to look at the actual words of, of ordination. Um, and, you know, there, there have been some particularly low church evangelical Anglicans who have argued that, well, really what ordination is, is, is a, a confirmation by the church of the gifts of the person. Um, I'm going to say that that's outside of the patristic faith and order and outside the Anglican formularies, that something is actually bestowed and given that wasn't there before. Uh, okay, and the reason I'm going to point is that we, we talked about the gift and the giving of the gift. Remember it through the laying on of my hands? We saw that in the preface to the ordinal. But now I'm going to say here, unfortunately it cut off on me, so I don't know what it said up above. But it basically says that the, 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 the bishop shall lay his hands on the head of everyone that receiveth the order of priesthood. Not everyone that day who's already received it and is going to be commissioned, okay, that receiveth the order of the priesthood. That means they didn't have it before he laid his hands on them, okay, that receiveth the order of the priesthood. The receivers, they're actually called the receivers because why? They've received something. They received something. If I give you a $10 bill, I'm the giver, you're the receiver, you now have $10. Did you have $10 before? No, my handing you the bill doesn't confirm your worth of 10 okay? Um, and so it says that the receivers humbly kneeling, and the bishop saying, so the bishop lays his hands upon them and says, receive. <laughs> See? When you receive something, you didn't have it before. This is when they're receiving it. So it's not Father in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would confirm that this person has been called to, to function in the order of pastoral ministry in the church. What they're saying is you're receiving a gift. You're receiving a gift. Okay. Receive the Holy Ghost for... So there's the, the, the reason it's being given. There's the context for the office. So it's an office and work of a priest. Again, just want to point out the ordinal. 1662 uses priest, not presbyter. Not that presbyter is wrong. I'm just reacting against those who say that priest is wrong. Okay? Say that's not Anglican. Well, here's one of the formularies. Receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God, now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands. 
So when is the gift given? Now. <laughs> okay? Now. Just like when some will argue, well, it becomes the body of Christ when you receive it um, by faith. In, as you're receiving, that's when Christ is present in a special way. The problem with that is that St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, that is a most intimate fellowship, a partaking in, um, is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ? When do we break it and bless it? Right, on the holy table on the altar. Right, exactly. So receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God, now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands. So it's not just an affirmation. Whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven. And whose sins thou dost retain, they are retained. Again, the liturgy here, based on ancient liturgies and writings of the fathers, associating this gift with that of the words of John, is it chapter 20, I think I said? Uh, when the risen Lord breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. And be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of God. So you're also a dispenser. And of his holy sacraments. In the name of the Father, <clears throat> and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I wanted to point, uh, point that out. Okay. These are all, <coughs> all things that you can remind me to send to you. Okay. Um, I didn't count all, get all three, but um, to get this one uh, here, um, uh, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a bishop in the Church of God, now committed unto thee by the imposition of our hands. So again, the Anglican formulary is clearly upholding that which is both biblical and patristic, that the gift of the Spirit for this particular charism, the ordained ministry of the church, is given through the laying on of hands. It is a charismatic event to be celebrated. It's being realized. It's being lived out. It's being transmitted through the laying on of hands. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. And remember that thou stir up the grace of God. What Now this is taking the words from Timothy. Why? Because as a bishop now... He has already received that in the, in the priesthood because the priesthood participates in the office of, of bishop. Remember, there was, very, there was less of a distinction between the two while the apostles were alive. And then when the apostles died, the bishops kind of move into that place and the priests are then seen and understood as an extension of, of the bishop in the local church. Okay? So really, who, at Holy Trinity here, who is your priest and pastor? He was an evangelical, you know, he's good. They, they have to answer that to every question. The answer is Jesus, amen. Well done, well done. Who's your priest and pastor here for Jesus? Bishop Harvey. I am, I'm not speaking canonically now, I'm speaking theologically. I am his vicar. I operate when he is not here. When he's here, it's the norm that he presides at the Eucharist. He preaches. 
because he he is uh, uh, is the priest and pastor. Okay. Um, uh, which is given thee by this imposition of our hands, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of, of love. Well, that was a good answer, though, Jordan. We, Jesus, is always, Jesus is always a good answer. We, we, well, and directly, Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, something Mary and I had wanted at one point, I think, uh, that if the bishop, and this might be something that's a different class, but if the bishop now receives the Holy Spirit and is ordained, consecrated so to give it out at confirmation, other ordinations, that kind of thing, um, does, is it like as if, and I would imagine it's not, that he, he retains that and has that on call Certainly he can't do it as he pleases. It must be done with. Within the context of what is blessed by the church. Now, to take it to an extreme, you get into an argument that has gone on in the church forever. Uh, In the West, let's say that Bishop uh, Harvey, it's canonically, uh, it's been since the early church that you need three bishops to consecrate a bishop. Part of it is that you're being received into the college of the ministry of, 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 of bishop, and you, you know, um, and uh, also the, the, some have argued that concern in case the line happened to be broken, this always preserves it and, and that. Um, uh, but anyway, but let's say that you could find three bishops to, to uh, ordain me, uh, consecrate me a bishop. Um, I, better chance of building a bridge from California to Hawaii. But anyway, let's say you uh, found three bishops to do that. And then I start proclaiming that uh, Jesus is not fully God as the Father is God. God forbid that I would ever do that. And I then, the church then calls me to repentance and I refuse and they and finally I'm removed from my C S E E the chair of authority of the bishop, uh, and I go off and I start the Michaelite Church, or the you know, and um, I then start ordaining. The question is, since I am no longer acting, even though I'm a bishop and always a bishop, I'm no longer acting. Uh, on behalf of the church. I'm acting on, be- on behalf of myself. So the question then becomes, is what I'm doing valid or not? That has been greatly and hotly debated. The, in now greatly over uh, uh, generalizing greatly now, the West has come down t- on it that they tend to worry about things like that. And they'll say, oh my goodness, okay, who did he ordain and, and, and so forth and so on, okay? And they'll, you know, and then if you were ordained by me and you come into the church and you say, well, I was ordained by Bishop Michael, who's, you know, in the apostolic succession, if you could prove that they might accept you without, you know, ordaining you again, or they might conditionally ordain you. The East tended to go the other way in the argument and say, Look, yes, you're always a bishop. You're just a really bad one because you've left the, the church and the faith of the apostles. Yeah, you're always a bishop, but you you know it, it, 
you're, you're all, you can only dispense in the name of the church, not in the name of yourself. So we don't care who he goes around ordaining because it's not valid, you know, because it's outside the context of the church. Um, so that to oversimplify things, the West has come down to trying to follow all the heretics and keep their line too. Uh, and the East has said, look, you're outside the church. We don't care what you do. Not, not that they don't care what you do, but they're not going to recognize the validity of that. Um, and, but that's an oversimplification. But that, you know, it's a good argument, and it's been debated. You know, I, I wouldn't lean towards the East. I usually do. Um, but then you get into more complicated questions. Like, okay, so... What if I didn't know that this bishop was, you know, not acting on behalf of the church, and I, was, I wasn't ordained by him, but I was baptized by him? Is my baptism now invalid? Well, then the ancient argument would say, no, the sin of the individual doesn't, um, uh, doesn't eradicate the efficacy of the sacrament. So, it'd be, so then I start to lean a little bit more Western, that, okay, so it still is... Valid, and I, I start to think about things like King David, you, you know, who you know. Here's your chance to kill Saul. Saul has been rejected by God uh, as king and and removed by God from his authority. And yet, what does David say? I will not touch God's anointed. So I kind of lean that way too. And and I think part of this argument eventually gets into the mysteries of of God. And probably if it was left to me, if, you, if I was an Orthodox uh, bishop and you were ordained by a, a heretical bishop that seemed to be in the line, though, I, I would probably um, ordain you conditionally and say, if, if you have not yet already received the gift of the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest of God, receive him now by the imposition of our hand. Um, but it, it's, 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 been a, it's been a question. I think leaning too far to the West almost makes apostolic succession less of a charismatic gift, a charism in the church to be celebrated and, and, and manifested and, and handed on and lived out. It almost makes it like a magic, like I've been zapped by the right zappers regardless of the fact that they believe anything that the church has taught, you know? So I think going too far to the Western position, though, can lead to a magic understanding of the sacraments. And I would want to avoid that as, as well. Be ordained by a bishop who's in the apostolic succession and holds the apostolic faith. You know, and then you don't have to worry about it. And uh, so that would have been my answer to the person I knew, is that I never could have done that in good conscience, simply by saying... You, you know, I, I remember, and in, in, uh, this may be upsetting to some, but it, it's an example to use. In, and I was in a setting where they were going to invite a Protestant minister to con celebrate. And I, and I said, um, oh, gee, you know, we really don't have the authority to do that. And I'm thinking of the preface to the ordinal that no man may take this up, you know, unless he's been. I said, it's not Anglican, it's not patristic, it's not. And I said, and, you know, I, 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 I hate to sound like an ogre, uh, but, you know, if you're going to do that, I can't con-celebrate uh, because I was invited too. And they said, well, what's it matter? The, celebra- the principal celebrant is valid, and you're valid, so what's it matter? And I said, because to me, 
it's like saying that if I participate, I'm giving witness to the fact that it's all good. You have it, you don't have it. Yeah, I'm bearing witness to that. That I can't do in a public context. I'm not saying that person isn't valid. I'm not making, I'm, I'm just saying we only know what we know and what we've received from the church. I don't know what happens outside of that. And so I couldn't, couldn't participate in, in, you know, in, in that situation. And uh, so, um, anyway, uh, you know, but it, it, it is a tough thing. But that brings us into the practice of Anglicanism. I was going to save this up later for when we get into essay, plenty essay, and Benny essay. And there'll be an essay on this. Um, uh, what, what, wait, let me just finish the statement and then whatever question you have. Um, you know, before I, when we got into that. But here, here's the fact. In small-o orthodox Anglicanism, if Father Dwight is ordained a Catholic priest in the Roman tradition, <laughs> in the Roman tradition, in the Roman tradition, or the Eastern Orthodox tradition, well, I'll give you a real life example in, that happened in this church. We had a priest who was ordained a Catholic priest in the Orthodox tradition, Father Terence McGillicuddy. He comes to us and comes through and says, basically, I want, I'm a priest who was ordained in the Orthodox tradition, and I want to live out my priesthood in the Anglican tradition. He is not ordained because there is no Anglican priesthood. He's already a priest of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. He received it in a particular fellowship of the greater church, and now is going to be received, his orders will be received and licensed by the bishop in this fellowship of Christ's Holy Catholic Church to, to function as a priest. We had another uh, uh, man come to us who was a uh, Protestant minister for 15 years, um, uh, Michael Bickford. And he came to us and he said, I feel called to be a priest where Father Terence did not have to be ordained because he's already recognized as a priest of Christ's Holy Catholic Church. His orders were received and he was licensed to function as a priest. Michael, although a, a minister of the gospel for 15 years, and we don't say that he has to deny that. We, what we say is we can only speak to what we know and what we have received. So we, unlike Rome, we don't go around saying, well, everything before was invalid, illicit, and irregular, and now you're going to be real. We, we, don't, we don't go there. We leave that to the mystery of God. We say, this is what we know. This is what we've received. This is what comes out of the scripture and was patristic and it handed on to us. And so he was ordained first a deacon and then a priest. Okay, so when a, a, a Catholic priest, whether in the Roman tradition or Eastern Orthodox tradition comes to us, they are not ordained because they're already recognized. When a Protestant minister comes, they're ordained a deacon and then a priest. Same thing in confirmation in small Orthodox Anglicanism. If, um, uh, Father, if, if Praveen comes to me and says, I was confirmed, I uh, received the gift of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands of a, of a bishop, um, when I was in the Roman Catholic Church, but now I want to live out my, my Christian faith in the Anglican tradition, he is not confirmed again, because he's already been confirmed. In fact, it says something like, 
Praveen, we recognize you already as a confirmed member of Christ's Holy Catholic Church, and we receive you into this fellowship. So you're received into this communion of the greater Catholic Church. But if um, Susie comes to us for the Presbyte- from the Presbyterian Church, right, and says, I was confirmed in the Presbyterian Church, but by a minister of the gospel, but not by a bishop in apostolic succession, she's not received, she's confirmed. Okay? And so that, that's an important distinction to, to make. Um, now, we're not saying she didn't have the Holy Spirit. We're saying this is what we know and what we have received, so this is what we practice. What we say is based on what we know and have received and practice, we already recognize that he's been confirmed. So we're not going to reconfirm him. We're going to lay hands and stir the spirit up within them, okay? And um, so uh, same thing for those who come from the Orthodox Big O Church. Everyone with me on that? Okay. The Orthodox priests have to be deacons, Yes. Yep, that's true everywhere in, in uh, Catholic Christendom. Um, you're, you're a deacon, then you're a priest. And then if, and then if God really doesn't like you... You're a bishop. <laughs> because an awful lot is put on, especially the bishops in our movement, who really are missionary uh, bishops. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, at the risk of, of people hearing this and feeling picked on, I think this is a good example. We still have some leftovers of when we were in the Episcopal Church. We think of our bishops as the bishop is in the, you know, the bishop's uh, office, and he's got the diocese right around him and, you know, and make an appointment to go see him. And our priest is in our parish. And then this priest is for this parish. And that priest in that town is for that parish. And so today when we're talking, like at a meeting yesterday that Karen was at, someone said, oh, well, when Father Michael is helping to start a church plant up here or is uh, doing stuff in the community over here, he is... Uh, away, you know, and it's it's the it's the old Episcopal Church mentality that the priest is assigned with the building, versus a priest is actually a priest of the diocese assigned to a particular community to do the ministry of a priest. So when I'm up in Rutland, I'm just as much doing my ministry as when I'm down here. But that mentality is the priest belongs to us in this building here. And so sometimes people feel like, well, okay, so now if you're down there doing X, you're, you're away from us. And the difference is between that we're more missionary in our development. Our bishops are more missionary too. Bishop Harvey has been home for the last three days. It was the first time he had been home in Newfoundland to see his wife in 47 days because he's been out doing the work of a missionary bishop. Um, and people don't realize that that that's true about our priests uh, as well. We're in a different day and age than the Episcopal Church. You know, Karen, I'm sorry. I, before I said wait, and then I never came back to you. Yeah, I I'm sorry.
important to whoever's receiving is receiving it in faith in, as well. Oh, a- absolutely. So we're talking about tithes and so on, but there's also this effect that it's a, a two-way thing going on. Absolutely. Faith ignites the gift. Okay? And so you can receive something and it remains dormant or, or boxed up. So you have been given something, but it's like a gift that's still in the, in the box with the wrapper and the bow. And when it's received by faith, now it may be the faith of the covenant community, and that gets us to back a few classes to when we talked about infant baptism that ignites it, right? But something can become dormant or it can even be a blazing fire and then go down to burning embers. And then with the breath of God, think of a billow, and it brings it back into a roaring fire. And, and, and that is true. I mean, one can, can be received the gift of the priesthood, and they truly are a priest. But at some point, that, that fire, that fire of the gift can be ignited within them. I'll, I'll give you an example. People will say, well, you know, I was raised by Christian parents, and I was baptized, but I became a Christian when I was 30 you know, when I received Jesus, I would say that what was given to you in your baptism was ignited when you were 30. And I, and I use this example all the time. It's kind of like it was awakened within you. Um, it was kind of like, boom, someone threw a match on the, on the powder. And here's the example I use. If I, 10 years ago, and this is not the case, by the way, for anyone listening, Let's say I was going to get married to Christine for whatever reasons. You know, I thought, I'm getting old. I better hook up with someone. You know, or, or she's got a lot of money. She drives a Lexus back then. So, you know, worked for the CIA, kept people killed. You know, or, I'm kidding, by the way. Uh, um, you know, for whatever, let's say, but I'm not in love. You, you, you know, I don't appreciate the gift that she is, okay? Then let's say five years later, I actually fall in love with her. And I really feel for the first time that we are one. And I get it. We are no longer two but one. I don't say, I got married on this day. I say, no, I was married back here. <laughs> right? On this day, I realized the gift that I have in Christine and the marriage we received. You know? And so and and that's something that you hear a lot of in in, so I do believe the gifts are given, but they can lay dormant or even be detrimental if someone is ill-prepared to receive the gift. I mean, Paul warns about receiving the Eucharist without um, uh, uh, receiving it in faith. And people see, see, think we're so mean because <laughs> if we don't re- let every, you know, everyone receive communion, we're actually doing it out of love. Paul warns about people receiving it uh, unworthily, the detriment to it. Yeah, Karen. No, not exactly. Let me clarify. When Rutland is its own parish and I go off to visit them then, then it's because of the archdeaconry. I'm going as archdeacon about once a year, maybe twice a year to check in on behalf of the bishop uh, how they're doing. Okay, then it is. Right now when I'm up there, since we are the mother church and and they're under us pastorally because they're not a parish yet, it actually is part of our mission 
And that's what we don't understand because we're used to a priest in every town, a priest in every pot, a priest in every town, you know, for the church. And so we're not used to this fact. And the ACNA, outside of worshiping God and bringing souls to Jesus, what's the number one mandate we have in our province? Plant churches. What's mandate number two? Plant churches. Mandate number three? Plant churches. Then number four is whatever, and five, six, seven, you know, locally. It's very clear that in this day and age, the way we reach people uh, isn't by opening a building and opening the doors and ringing the bell. We go out to the people, and we make Jesus Christ relevant, and then we lead them in. That's why I'm excited about what our thing this morning. This is what we're doing. We're just doing it in a new, modern way through, through social media. We are going out and bringing Jesus to people, not saying, come to us to find Jesus. We're, bring, we're doing what the incarnation does. God comes into people's lives and among them to proclaim the gospel, and then takes them by the hand and brings them into his life. You know, And so when we go off to plant churches, we are actually doing the, the ministry of the church. And, uh, but when they become their own parish, and when Medway, who's not too far behind them, I pray, becomes their own parish, then that's different. Then that's different. So then I'm up there as Archdeacon, and then you are, out of the goodness of your heart, kind of loaning me out a little bit. Um, Although even there you can make the argument that it's not many churches coming together to form a diocese. The smallest unit of the church, according to the patristic writers, is the diocese. And the diocese is manifested locally in many uh, um, towns, okay? Um, And so it's the diocese locally manifested, not many churches coming together to form a diocese theologically, okay? Um, And so what you could say is, I'm not hired, for example, by the local congregation. They extend a call, and then the bishop has to approve that and appoint me and license me to function as his priest in his church in that particular locale on his behalf because he can't be there every week. Okay, So I'm really a diocesan priest who functions most of the time, and the money I receive is on behalf of the diocesan family, to, to help me do that ministry, which is primarily here. But if I get elected to council for diocesan council, it's not that, ah, oh, more time of him. I'm still doing the ministry as a diocesan priest. You know? Now, like any relationship, it can get ridiculous, right? I mean, people can say uh, to, to their wife, you, you know, I'm spending time over at my mother's house, so, and, and they're gone so much that it's affecting the relationship, you know? So there has to be a balance there, of course. But you could make that argument. But, but ultimately, going back to the original thing that I was stating, when you're, you're planting churches, you are doing the work of, of the church. Going back to the apostolic succession, by the way, and the laying out of hands and legally, in the Methodist movement in the Church of England, which, by the way, I like to think that if I lived at that time, I would have, by the grace of God, been part of the Methodist movement. Um, the Methodist movement originally was very high church. It was a methodical use of the prayer book. There was a commitment to the Holy Eucharist on the Lord's Day, evangelical preaching and teaching and reaching souls for Jesus. I mean, it's just Anglicanism at its best, okay? 
Um, unfortunately, though, what happened was, although it was meant to be a movement within the church, and in fact, the pastor here has often said that if John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement, were to come back today and attend our service and then attend their service, they would assume that we were the Methodists. Okay? Um, and uh, But anyway... Um, um, John and Charles, what happened was is they couldn't get um, bishops to support the movement because it was a bad time in the church and most of the bishops were corrupt um, and cared more about themselves and worldly things than they did the word of God. Um, and so John came to the conclusion that in this emergency situation, he, as a presbyter, could uh, ordain. Charles said, no, you cannot. That is not received by the whole church. And, um, and so um, his, Charles, his fear was that this would result not in a strengthening of the movement, but actually in a new denomination and separation, um, which is what eventually resulted. And then, you know, the Methodist movement became the Methodist church, okay? And then the apostolic succession, as we understand it, was then subsequently lost. Um, but Charles was against it. Uh, Jean was, was, was for it, okay? So that's that whole debate of, you, you know, uh, being played out there, you know. All right, so continuing now to look at the... Formularies, we, we looked at the ordinal, including the preface. We looked at, of 1662, we looked at the prayer book of 1662. That leaves one of the formularies left. 39 articles. So we turn to Article 36. Article 36 of Consecration of Bishops and Ministers. And I'm going to read the original one from the Church of England and not as it was adopted in the Episcopal Church. So here's the 1662 text. The book of consecration of archbishops and bishops and ordering of priests, just throwing that in there again, and deacons lately set forth in the time of Edward VI and confirmed at the same time by authority of Parliament doth contain all things necessary to such consecration in ordering. What are they arguing here? What are they trying to defend? That they are maintaining the threefold order of ministry. That, the, that what's in this prayer is in continuity, in essence, with the church of every age. Nothing's lacking in it that would make the, the bishops, priests, and deacons invalid. Nothing's lacking in it that would result in the invalidity of our orders. Okay? Which means there's a concern here to clarify that we intend to maintain and reverently esteem, as the preface to the ordinal says, the threefold order of ministry of the greater Catholic Church. Okay? So it doth contain all things necessary to such consecration and ordering. Neither hath it anything that of itself 
is superstitious or ungodly. What are they arguing there? Yeah, it's, it's biblical and, and, and it's perfectly valid and we're maintaining the orders of ministry, but it, it, it does lack something and thank God it lacks the superstition and some ungodly things that have crept into medieval Western Roman Catholicism. So what they're saying is it's valid and not nutty. <laughs> That's what they're saying. They're saying it's Catholic, but not Roman. Okay? And therefore, whosoever are consecrated or ordered according to the rites of that book, since the second year of the forenamed King Edward unto this time, or hereafter, so there's that succession, shall be consecrated or ordered according to the same rites. We decree all such to be rightly, orderly, and lawfully consecrated and ordered. Okay. So uh, that's looking at the uh, apostolic uh, succession from scriptures, from the fathers, and from the... Um, Formularies. Thank you, Deacon Susie. Okay. Now, I'm going to read, even though it got cut off, I won't, uh, there's one sentence I'll have to leave out because it got cut off. I apologize to you for that. Um, and, uh, but um, I'm going to read to you from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer Ordinal on um, what it says regarding the office of priest. Just the, what is our understanding of the priesthood? We have no priesthood of our own, but what's our understanding of the priesthood we have received? So the bishop, sitting in his chair, uh, an ancient sign of authority, shall say unto them as hereafter followeth. Must be true, because it's in traditional English. Ye have heard, brethren, as well in your private examination as in the exhortation which was now made to you, and in the holy lessons taken out of the gospel and the writings of the apostles, of what dignity and of how great importance this office is, whereunto ye are called. So it's stating that this is an office of the church, that there's great dignity in the office, not necessarily in the person per se, but in the, the office that's occupied by the person. And now again we exhort you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye have in remembrance into how high a dignity and to how weighty an office and charge ye are called, that is to say to be messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. To teach and to promonish, to feed and provide for the Lord's family to seek for Christ's sheep that are dispersed abroad and for his children who are in the midst of this. I love this. Are you ready? And to seek for his children who are in the midst of this naughty world. <laughs> that they may be saved through Christ forever. I mean, friends, that's good stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean that that that's our charge as as the church is to seek the lost who are in the midst of this world that they may be saved not by us but by Christ through us. 
Have always, therefore, printed in your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge, for they are the sheep of Christ, which he bought with his death, and for whom he shed his blood. The church and congregation whom you must serve, so you you serve the church and then a particular congregation of the church, whom you must serve, is his spouse and his body. And if it shall happen that the same church or any member thereof do take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, ye know the greatness of the fault and also the horrible punishment that will ensue. Makes you think. Wherefore, consider with, and then it disappears off the page, Yourself, the end of the ministry towards the children of God, toward the spouse and body of Christ, and see that ye never cease your labor, your care and diligence, until ye have done all that lieth in you, according to your bounden duty, to bring all such as are or shall be committed to your charge unto that agreement in the faith and knowledge of God, and to that ripeness and perfectness of age in Christ that there be no place left among you either for error in religion or vicious in life. Uh, no, wait, yeah, vicious right? V V I C I O U S. Vicious. Say that again. It's not. Is it? Oh, it is viciousness. V I C I O U S N E S S. Viciousness. Vicious. Don't be vicious, Mark. For as much then as your office is both of so great excellency and of so such great difficulty, ye see with how great care and study ye ought to apply yourselves, as well to show yourselves dutiful and thankful unto the Lord, who hath placed you in so high a dignity, as also to beware that neither you yourselves offend, nor be occasion that others offend. Howbeit, ye cannot have in mind and will thereto of yourselves, for that will and ability is given of God alone. Therefore ye ought and have need to pray earnestly for his Holy Spirit. And seeing that ye cannot by any other means compass by, by the doing of so weighty a work pertaining to the salvation of man, but with doctrine and exhortation taken out of the Holy Scriptures, and with a life agreeable to the same, consider how studious ye ought to be in reading and learning the scriptures, and in the framing the manners both of yourselves and of them that specially pertain unto you according to the rule of the same scriptures, and for this selfsame cause, how ye ought to forsake and set aside as much as ye may all worldly cares and studies. In other words, this is of high dignity and great difficulty. So before you do anything, pray and read the scriptures. Pray and read the scriptures. We have good hope that ye have well weighed these things with yourselves long before this time, always good, and that ye have clearly determined by God's grace to give yourself wholly to this office, whereunto it hath pleased God to call you, so that as much as lieth in you, ye will apply yourselves wholly to this one thing, and draw all your cares and studies this way, 
and that ye will continually pray to God the Father by the mediation of our only Savior, Jesus Christ, for the heavenly assistance of the Holy Ghost, that by daily reading and weighing the Scriptures, ye may wax riper and stronger in your ministry, and that ye be that you may so endeavor yourselves from time to time to sanctify the lives of you and yours and to fashion them after the rule and doctrine of Christ that ye may be wholesome and godly examples and patterns for the people to follow. Um, and then they go on to say, uh, do you, and it goes on a little bit more, and then the, the question asked is, um, do you think in your heart that you are truly called according to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ and according to the canons of this church to the order and ministry of the priesthood? And the answer is, I think it. Um, in the, some of the modern translations, and thank goodness they got rid of this, it was, I think so. And the way, and, and the way we say, I think so, means like you're pretty sure. And I think it was your ordination. We had to change this, right? Because what it's supposed to be is, I think so. In other words, this is true. So, but So I think. So I think. Yeah. Right, exactly, Isaac. But, you know, I, all I could see the bishop was saying, do you, Deacon Susie, truly believe you're called to be a deacon in the church of God? Uh, I think so, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> kind of? Pretty sure? I was told I'd get a party, you know. Um, and then the bishop says, and this is the statement that says, yes, we're maintaining the, this, the, 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 the orders of ministry, threefold order of ministry of the Catholic Church. But it makes it clear that we're Bible Catholics and that we're not Roman Catholics, that we haven't added anything to the Catholic faith. Okay? Um, which by definition isn't Catholic if you add or subtract to it. So, But it says, are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine required as necessary for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And are you determined out of the said Scriptures to instruct the people committed to your tar- charge and to teach nothing as necessary to eternal salvation, but that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by the Holy Scripture? In other words, we hold the Catholic faith, but we only hold as that which is truly Catholic and essential is that which can be clearly proved by Holy Scripture. So our Catholicity is biblical Catholicity, biblical Catholicism. Is everyone with me on that? This is from the ordinal, very, very important stuff. Questions before we move to the, uh, the next. We may actually get out of here early unless I get long-winded on this next part. But uh, questions, so um, we have one more part, but questions on... Um, on this so far. Okay. Now here's, here's, here's one of the difficulties then before we look at the last part. If I said to you, um, as Anglicans we have no creeds of our own, right? We profess the creeds of the undivided Catholic Church. We have no creeds of our own. We hold the Catholic creeds. Well, then by definition, they would be creeds that have, are by definition Catholic. They've been received by the whole church as being true to Scripture. Right? Everyone with me? So what if I was to say to you, 
oh, the ACNA, that's the province to which we belong, uh, is going to de- has decided at a gathering of, of its bishops uh, the other day to add something to the creed. What would your reaction be? Right, exactly. You are no longer Catholic. Because for for us to profess the Catholic creeds, it must be the creed received by the whole church. If something is particular to you, it is by definition not Catholic. Okay? So you cannot add. So what if I said, okay, well, we profess not our own creeds, but the Catholic creeds, but we're going to take something out of the creeds that wasn't in, uh, that uh, was in there. So you can't subtract from them either and have it be Catholic, right? Um, right. So here's the thing. When we talk about the filioque, for example, in the creed, people get, you know, uh, you know, upset. Well, you know, don't remove it because, you know, it was in the 1928 prayer book and it was, <laughs> you know, and it's been in all the prayer books and this is what we've known. But the thing is, if you were to go back in time and say, what truly is the Catholic creed of Nicaea, Constantinople? It doesn't include the Filioque. The Filioque wasn't proclaimed at Nicaea, in Constantinople, in Ephesus, in, uh, in Chalcedon, uh, or in Constantinople II, or three or Nicaea II. None of the seven ecumenical councils. It was never received by the whole church east and west. So regardless of whether you want to make a theological defense for it, whether it's true or not, is a secondary issue. The question is, if we say we proclaim the Catholic creed, can we proclaim something that was not in the Catholic creed? No, because then you're, you're professing something that's a particular Western creed. Okay? I've heard people make the argument, well, we are the child of the Western Church, not the principle of the English Reformers. The principle of the English Reformers was for us to identify ourselves as Catholics. Okay, We may be particularly in the West, but we are Catholics. It was to return the, church, the faith and order of the Church in England to the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the Bible as the Word of God. So you can't make the argument that, well, we're Western, when it comes to something that's particular. Okay, so you're all with me so far. All right. So then the, the, the question becomes, well, if we added something or deleted something to the creed today, that would sound like a big deal, right? But when, you, when it's something you've known all your life and it happened over a thousand years ago, well, you know, it doesn't sound that big of a deal, right? Um, it's, it's the same thing. When we are in dialogue with Christians of denominations that have not maintained the apostolic succession, it's difficult in that dialogue, isn't it? Because we don't want to imply uh, out of love that somehow they are less, okay? That there is something less about them. Um, but the question is, is that that's because we're looking now and going looking back in time. But like I said, <clears throat> if you go back in time, for most of Christian history, there was never a time when there was an ordained ministry apart from the apostolic succession. So then the question becomes, um, not can we live without it, but is this the intent of God for his church? 
Well, I would argue that the argument presented today from the scriptures and the writings of the early church fathers, the ancient liturgies of the church, the ancient councils of the church, the, uh, in the Anglican formularies, in the, the, the writings of the English reformers would say, um, this is the ordained ministry of the church. Okay. Um, when you go back in time and you look forward and you say, someone's going to add to the creed, that sounds nuts. Or if you're back in time and you're looking forward and you say, someone's going to delete from the creed, that sounds crazy. <clears throat> uh, so if you go back in time and you say, someone's going to do away with the apostolic succession and create <clears throat> a new ordained ministry, that would sound a little bizarre. But when you live in this day and age, it, it's harder to see it that way. Does that make sense to people? Because we've been living without it. So here's a fictitious example. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Continental Reformation, this part isn't fictitious, Luther actually called into question the, um, the validity of the book of James and some of the other books, actually, um, within the canon of the New Testament. Thanks be to God, he wasn't successful in removing um, these books from the canon of the New Testament. Here's the fictitious part. Let's say that he did. And let's say James was the only one that he removed. So for 500 years, give or take, the Lutheran movement has been living without the letter of James. The Epistle of Straw, as he called it. Now we enter into dialogue with the Lutherans in this day and age. They might say, look, it's been this way for over 500 years. I would respond, but until you did this, there wasn't any time in the church from the establishment of the canon to, to when you did this that James was not considered to be biblical. So then let's, they, let's then say they make the argument, well, but we're no worse the where. We've been without James for 500 years, and we still believe in the Trinity. We still believe in the Incarnation. We still believe in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We still believe in the Atonement, right? We still believe that, that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. We still believe that um, the sacrament of baptism is efficacious. So we've been without James for 500 years and we're no worse the where. I don't think, even though in our own day and age it would be nice to say, well, it's all good. You, you don't have James, but we do, and that's okay. We'll celebrate our diversity. <clears throat> what we need to say, look, is that it's not whether or not you can live without James. It's whether or not God intended James to be part of the canon? That's the question. Did God intend James to be part of the canon? If the answer is yes, your argument shouldn't be, well, we can live without him and we're no worse the where. The question would be, how can we receive anew the fullness of the canon? Does that make sense to people? So it's, it's the same thing with the creed. If someone adds to the creed, as the Western Roman Church did, the question shouldn't be, well, can you make a theological argument for the filioque? The question shouldn't be, well, 
we've 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 had it for for uh, a thousand years officially in the creed, and uh, we're no worse than where we still believe in the Trinity. The question should be, if we are going to profess the creed of the church rather than a particular creed, can we have an addition or deletion to it? So then the question becomes, in the apostolic ministry, what do we do when someone has, whether it be an accident of history or intentionally, removed themselves from the threefold order of ministry as the church had known it and received it from the time of the New Testament and the apostles to the present day? Should we come to the argument saying, well, are they any worse the where? Should we come to the argument saying, it's all good, you can have it you or not have it, and it's all, it's all okay? Or should we be asking the question, based on scripture and tradition, does it seem that this was God's intent for his church? I'm going to argue the latter. Not very PC when it comes to ecumenical dialogue, um, but I think real ecumenists actually appreciate the honesty. Uh, you know what I what I love about real ecumenism is that we 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 don't hide from the differences because it's only by acknowledging them that we can really challenge one another, you know, to grow uh, in through the dialogue. Uh, otherwise, the dialogue is really just about affirming one another and how good we are versus challenging uh, one another and growing together uh, in that. I'll give you a real, a real example, not a fictitious one. Most Lutherans outside of Scandinavia lost, some as an accident of history, the apostolic succession as we understand it. Now, that's not true with, with some Lutherans in Scandinavia who maintained it. Um, but most Lutherans, uh, including those in North America, lost it. The Lutherans began to focus on an understanding of apostolic succession uh, that was, well, it's not that hands have been laid upon us by bishops going back to the first bishops in, in Christ and the apostles, but rather we understand apostolic succession as being that we have maintained in every age the apostolic faith. Anglicanism, in their argument with Roman Catholicism, often would emphasize the fact that, look, we have the right lineage. You know, we were ordained by bishops going, and that these uh, words um, are sufficient for conveying the grace of God because they're based on the ancient liturgies of the church. In dialogue with Lutherans and Anglicans, I think a, a fuller and more patristic understanding of apostolic succession has often emerged through that dialogue, through challenging one another. Anglicans saying, you know what, we don't want to emphasize that it's all rightly done to a point where our argument is purely judicial. Does that make sense? We've been zapped by the right zappers. There is something to a fuller understanding of apostolic succession that there's a continuity of apostolic faith. And some Lutherans have come and have even joined the ACNA or have entered into levels of communion with the ACNA saying, we believe that there's something fuller too in that not only having apostolic faith, but having apostolic order and have received the, the apostolic succession in how we would understand it. 
So I think that the answer isn't just being nice to one another and affirming one another how everything is okay. Okay? I think that God works through the struggle with one another. And so this would be, for example, if a, a, a Methodist minister comes to me and says, do you believe God's grace works through me? I'd say, it seems evident that God's grace often works through you. Do you believe I'm a minister of the gospel? Of course you're a minister of the gospel. Do you believe I'm ordained? Do you say you're ordained? Yeah, okay, because you're ordained. Do you believe that I am what you are? That I will not pronounce judgment on. I only know what I know and what I have received. I know I'm a priest through the sacramental gift of holy orders. But I'm not going to make a judgment. I know if you want to come into Catholic orders and live it out in Anglicanism, that our bishop will ordain you and you can live that out. And you don't have to reject what came before. You're just saying you're coming into this understanding of of what we have received and have known and has uh, been handed on to us. Um, But I don't think much good comes from it's all good. Okay, now some people will say, well, but it's important to model, you know, different, different views of the of what we perceive to be truth. And it was famous in the Episcopal Church to talk about plural truth. There's multiple truths. It's, it's, it's like parallel universes. <laughs> okay, if, if you're a Star Trek fan, you remember the episode Mirror, Mirror, uh, where the bo- Spock with a beard, you, you know, the plural truth. What, Mark? You don't require any kind of documentation to prove that, that they were what they say they are when they come to you? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. Uh, 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 absolutely, uh, absolutely. Well, it was the way you were presenting it there. It was sounded like, well, you said you're a priest and you're... Oh, no, what, what I'm saying is that we don't make a judgment. If a Methodist minister comes to us and says, you know, do you think God's grace works? So, of course, yeah, it seems evident. They, but if the real question they want to know is, do we think they're a priest? And what we'd say is, look, we can't speak to what we don't know. And I think this idea that of saying it's all good and that we can model different things and that that's going to help the world is not good. And here's an example I use. It's an extreme example to make a point. People will say, well, you know what? We could be in a church where some of our members are in apostolic succession and some aren't. Some profess the creed with the filioque and some don't. Some believe that Jesus is present in the sacrament of the Eucharist and some believe it's symbolic. And this is all good for you know, our children to, you know, to see that there's diversity and we're all struggling with, with what is truth and that we can hold our truths in tension me, that would be like my wife saying, um, coming to me and saying, Michael, um, I, I want to be in an open marriage. But I don't want you to be in an open marriage. I want you to remain faithful to me only while I have relations with several different men. Because, and I want us to stay married too. Don't, don't think about divorcing me because that would be so close-minded. I want us to model together for our children two visions of marriage, traditional model of marriage and a contemporary open model of marriage. And think how healthy that is. I call it, okay, you know, and that's what this contemporary world is trying to sell at all different degrees. And I really think when we sit down with ecumenical dialogue, we shouldn't be willing to compromise everything 
for the sake of, of, of unity, but rather try to enter into unity by truly dealing with the hard issues and challenging one another with them, you know? Um, you know, and uh, rather than saying, well, now, now let's say in the scenario before we're married, Christine came to me and said, I believe in an open marriage. You believe in a traditional marriage. We'll get married and then we'll work it out. That's also what Christians try to do. We'll enter into full communion with each other, right? We're all together. It's all good. And then we'll try to work it out together. I'll tell you one thing. I'm not entering into a covenant with that woman in marriage who believes in open marriage. Why? Because an open marriage is contrary to what has been revealed by God in the Holy Scripture and in the faith and order of the early church. That's why. So I would say that we can't say, well, you know what, you don't have the book of James, we do, but we can enter into full communion together with each other and it's all good and we'll work it out later. No, what we have to say is, look, we need to sit down and we need to work on this together until we can achieve full communion together. If that takes 100 years, let's do it. But let's stop innovating and doing anything more that's particular or innovative that's going to divide us on those essential things until we have communion. I've been asked by people I I love and respect, what are we supposed to do? Wait uh, until we have ecumenical agreement on on everything before we, we change anything? Yes. It's called the body of Christ. It's a covenant. I'm married to my wife. I can't go out and buy a Mustang and come home and then inform her. Because if I do so, I'm exercising, um, I'm exercising my autonomy within the marriage at the expense of the covenant. D- does that make sense? So yes, when we're in covenant together as the body of Christ, we, we can't act unilaterally or innovatively. Yes. In, in Anglicanism, at the time of the, of, of the um, English Reformation, they made it clear, unlike many of, their, of our Protestant brothers and sisters, and by the way, I believe in rejoicing in the highest level of fellowship that you can have. Okay? So while I say, let's not have a false union, union and then try to work it out, okay? I believe, though, at the same time, of having the highest level. So I get together with with all my brothers and sisters and other denominations and try to rock and roll as much as we can, you know? Um, but when the English Reformation took place, this is what they said is, the so-called or apparent changes, are they cannot be innovations. They must be a return to the faith, practice, and order of the undivided church under Scripture. So, for example, they said... Um, we will no longer be under the direct jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. We never said, by the way, that we're out of communion with the Bishop of Rome. He has said he's out of communion with us, by the way. (laughs) But we have never said that. We said that the Bishop of Rome doth not have, and we said doth too, so that was important. We said doth. He doth not have direct jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm. Was that an innovation or a return to the faith, practice, and order of the early church. It was a return. 
the Bishop of Rome didn't have any level of jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm for the first uh, seven and a half centuries. And he's never historically had jurisdiction over the whole Catholic Church at any period in church history. So that was a return, not an innovation. We said that uh, bishops, priests, and deacons could marry. They don't have to be required to be celibate. Is that an innovation or a return? It's a return. We said the Mass should be in the English, in the vernacular of the people. Was that an innovation or a return? A return. We said that um, um, people will be allowed to receive both the body and the blood of Christ. Was that an innovation or a return? A return. We said while we affirm that Christ is truly present in the Holy Eucharist, it nourishes us with the benefit of his death and resurrection when we receive Holy Communion, and that only bishops, priests, and, de- uh, bishops and priests can consecrate, while we affirm that, we reject transubstantiation as a philosophical argument of how Christ is present being made a dogma of the church. Is that an innovation or a return? Return. We said, while we believe in purgation, we reject the Romish doctrine of purgatory. Is that an innovation or a return? Return. So anyway, I can go on all day if you want me to, but the point I'm trying to make is that we never said, when it comes to the essentials now, when it comes to the scriptures, the sacraments, the creeds, um, and the, uh, the ministry of the church, the ordained ministry of the church, we said we have returned to the faith and order of the undivided church under scripture. We have not innovated. Um, we profess no faith of our own. We profess no sacraments of our own. We profess no creeds of our own. We profess no um, uh, Bible of our own, orders of ministry of our own. We profess those of the undivided Catholic Church under Holy Scripture. Um, and so that was, was the argument. The argument of Anglicanism is we have neither added to the Catholic faith, like our Roman brothers and sisters, nor have we deleted from the Catholic faith, even in good intention, with good intention by our Protestant brothers and sisters. We maintain, uphold, and profess that which we have received. Even the ordination of women as deacons, is that an innovation or a return? Return. Return. Now, some have argued, for those listening, thinking, how could he say that? Uh, There are those who have studied this in the ancient West, and it's unclear whether women in the Western part of the greater Catholic Church, whether it was a a lay ministry or fully an, uh, an ordained ministry. But it is very clear in the East that it was ordination, and the West never uh, spoke against it, okay? When they argued over everything, right? You use unleavened bread. You use leavened bread. You're going to hell. No, you're going to hell. Yeah, you know, you're going to purgatory. There is no purgatory. Yeah, you know? So they argued over everything, and they never said that. Plus, it, it seems from the scriptural uh, evidence that women did serve as deacons as well. So it was a return, even divorce and remarriage under certain circumstances goes back to canons of the 5th century. Okay, The first innovation where Anglicanism is said, uh, and again, there's a lot that we can change. We do have autonomy, but not at the expense of our unity in the covenant. I have an autonomy in my marriage. Can I choose, if I have $10 in our budget, 
to go out and eat lunch? Do I have to call my wife in line at the subway and say, I'm thinking of going with a six-inch chicken breast with lettuce, tomato, and onion, and light mayonnaise. Do you concur? Yes, we concur. We have agreement in the covenant. Thank you. I mean, do I have to do that? No, I have a certain autonomy, right? I can order my own, right? Do I have autonomy where I can go out and have an affair with someone? No. If I do that, I'm exercising my autonomy, like an idiot, at the expense of my life, at the expense of the covenant, okay? At the expense of the covenant, okay? Um, same thing. The church has certain level of, of autonomy. Can we in Anglicanism say that, well, we're not going to require all priests to wear chasubles. Some can wear cassock surplus and stole. You don't have to use incense. Yeah, you, incense. You don't have, yes, you can make a good argument for or against this stuff, right? And it's, and it's use. But it, it, you know, there's certain autonomy there. But we don't have autonomy at the, at the level of when you do this, does it cause a break in communion with, with the greater body, okay? Um, and so that's, that's where it's, that's why we never declared a break with Rome. They declared a break with us. They're like, you guys are in time out. That's what we're saying. Go to your corner. And uh, so, um, and by the way, we weren't excommunicated by Rome, by the way, until the reign of Elizabeth. We were not excommunicated during Henry or Edward, by the way. Just saying. So, uh, um, um, so, yeah, I would say in 1976, that was the first innovation. Right or wrong, whether you feel it's right or wrong, um, they did it by a vote. How many people think that, you know, women can be priests and bishops? And they did it by a vote. Not only did we not do it within the greater consensus of the church Catholic, but we didn't even do it as a communion or fellowship of the church. You know, little parts of the church did it here and there and, and, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, In fact, most people said, yeah, we didn't do it the right way, but, first time we innovated, but, by the year 2000, which sounds like a long way away, but it, it's, it's not, right? By the year 2000, only 24 years from now, 25 years from now, th- this will have been received by the entire Anglican communion, huge inroads um, in the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Eastern Church will be debating it. The fruit has been that to this day, only three, Three, I believe, of the 38 provinces, uh, 39 if you include us, only three ordain women as bishops. The others do not. It's caused impaired communion within our own communion. Let me me finish the argument. (laughs) Um, Only three. More than half of the Anglican communion does not ordain women still as priests. In ecumenical dialogue... Um, it caused huge fractures where we were very close, and in particular with the Eastern Orthodox Church. So ecumenically, it caused division in, in the church. The What's called the Old Catholic Church Communion of Utrecht split over this issue. Uh, Rome is only tighter on the issue, and Orthodoxy, it's not an issue. 
In fact, there was a group of women theologians and others who got together in orthodoxy to make a big statement on it, and they came out and said, women are called to be deacons, they are not called to be priests or bishops. And this came from a a, a women's group. Um, So, you know, the fact is, is it, it hasn't even been... It hasn't even shown, yeah, we did it prematurely, but it's going to prove to be Catholic. It's actually, if anything, went the other way. And has even caused impaired communion within our own small, low, Orthodox Anglican movement. Uh, in, you know, in tension and so forth. Um, um, so, I'm going to say yes, that was an innovation. And I'm going to say that... Uh, without arguing whether it's God's intent or not, because that's, that's another argument, okay? I'm going to say we had no authority to act upon it. All right, go ahead. So, so by that argument, then, we as the Anglican Church cannot do anything since the church split in 1052. You cannot add or subtract. 54. 54. Because now you can never have the whole church, East and West, agree on something. Well, this is what I would argue. The more you innovate, the less chance you ever have of there really being... Of, you know, we want Jesus to answer our prayers, right? What's the one prayer of his that we can answer? That we be one. The more we innovate on the essentials now, I'm not talking about whether a priest faces East the way he should, or whether he faces the people. I'm not talking about whether it's chasuble or cassock. I'm not talking about how many coals you put in the thurible. Okay? Um, I, I'm, I'm ta- whether it's contemporary language or the language that Jesus spoke. Okay? That was a little joke. Because um, <laughs> he spoke Elizabethan English, of course. You know. Dost thou wisheth salvation? <laughs> yes, <it's> Lord. <laughs> okay? Um, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the essentials now. The more you innovate, the less likely you will ever be able to come. And that's why the, the great Anglican, what's called the Lambeth Quadrilateral, which is not officially part of the formularies, but unofficially has been received as part of the formularies, states that the Christian unity can only be attained by the return of all Christian communions to the, uh, to the principles of unity exemplified by the undivided Catholic Church before the disunion of East and West. If I could put it on my license plate, I would. <laughs> okay. Well, you see that car speed by? <laughs> right down that plate. You know what that statement says? When it comes to the essentials of faith and order, the Church is Catholic and it's under authority. And that authority is God's Word. We cannot innovate. And when we do, it causes great division. Now, for good or for ill, whether you agree or not, um, when the Common Cause partners were coming together to take a stand for Orthodox Anglicanism and the Gospel uh, to form the province, the ACNA, um, they said, well, look, what are we going to do? We could try to work out this problem now, and we, we may never come together to take this stand because we'll be divided, or we can come together with the promise that we will work on it. Now, you can argue which one's the right way of doing it, okay? 
Um, in practice, I kind of like their choice. They came together and took the stand. In theory, I don't agree with that choice. I don't think you come together and then work out the problems. Like in the example that I used of the marriage, you know, you're in an open marriage, I'm in a traditional marriage, let's get married and then we'll work it out. I don't think you do that, okay? But in practice, I'm, I thank God they did because, you know, I, I, I love being part of this province. Um, but what they said was, we will not have women as bishops because that will affect the apostolic succession. Um, uh, most will have women as deacons because that's more biblical and, and, and patristic. Um, uh, whether or not there's women priests will be up to the particular diocese and bishop of that diocese. Um, and so that's the agreement. However, it was just released last week that the Archbishop, Bob Duncan, has um, set up a, um, what would you call it? A task force, yeah, to look at this question from the point of Scripture and tradition so that we can, in the future, have a more unified position. Now, if you ask me, what's that more unified position going to be? Uh, some will say, oh, well, clearly it will be that women can, can be bishops and priests and deacons. Um, some will say, no, the task force in the end will come to the conclusion that what we have now, no women as bishops, but they can be priests if the bishop says it's okay and they can be deacons. It, I'm going to throw out my guess now. Here's my, my bet on, on the horse. And, and it's going to be recorded for all time. And then someday, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you can look back and say, we were taught by an idiot. Okay? Uh, or we were taught by a genius. Okay? Um, here's my prediction. Um, I, I, I think it will come out that women can be deacons, but not as priests and bishops. And I think that's where it will come out. Uh, ass. No. Um, this is the misconception because we live in New England where it's almost a given that women can, can be priests. Um, uh, but uh, in the House of Bishops, I think out of 40 bishops in the ACNA, eight ordained women as priests, almost all as deacons. Almost all. There's a few that even hold out on that. The Reformed Episcopal Church bishops, most do not ordain women as deacons either. Using that argument of the Western Church that it was probably a lay order. So they have, they have the lay order of deaconess within the church. Uh, but then they have the ordained male deacons. But the majority uh, ordain women as deacons. And it, it doesn't cause... And even in ecumenical dialogue, Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy, they don't seem to really mind when we ordain women as deacons. They're like... Okay, let's keep working on this now. Uh, but when we started to do the priests, they were like, whoa, wait a minute, I thought you, your, your claim, whether we recognize it or not, is that you're Catholic. This seems to be pretty innovative. How can, you, how can it be both? You know, and so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's the question. You know, I'm going to take one more on this, but then I, I, I want to get to essay, plenty essay, and Benny essay. And, um, and, uh, you know, being Michael McKinnon, I like to think of myself as a nice guy. If Jesus doesn't care, I don't care. I mean, if Jesus came down and said, Michael, what do you think? Should I allow women priests? Jesus, if you're asking me, do it. I mean, it's so hard being conservative on this issue. But I don't see 
with our claims and based on scripture and tradition that we had any authority to make that decision unilaterally. And I believe that I must, up, I must uphold the faith and order of the undivided church under scripture um, uh, and not innovate. You know? Now, if the whole church came to that, I'd have to relook at that. You know? But I'm going to tell you about essay, plenty essay, and Benny essay. Since the time of the English Reformation, there have been two in particular, and now there's a third argument. There's been two in particular positions on the apostolic succession. There have been the Benny essay people, Benny, B-E-N-E-E-S-S-E, meaning basically well-being, who would argue that maintaining the apostolic succession of bishop, priest, and deacon, ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles, is for the well-being of the church. This is the government of the church since the early church. This is what comes down to us. There's been times when it's abused, but overall it's for the betterment of the church as it tries to live out the gospel. And so it's for the well-being of the church. However, those who are outside of the apostolic succession, they're no less the church. Okay? Um, they, uh, um, but we would challenge them that it's for the well-being of the church that they uh, receive the apostolic succession. Then you have the other extreme over here that says that the apostolic succession is of the essay of the church, E-S-S-E, the essay. It's of the essence of the church. Your denomination cannot be fully a, uh, or, or ca- it cannot be really a manifestation of the church without it. Because to fully, I mean, no, to be essentially the church of Jesus Christ and the apostles, not to be confused with the church of Jesus Christ and Latter day Saints, okay? The church of Jesus Christ and the apostles, you have to maintain the, the scriptures of that church the faith, e.g. creeds of that church, the sacraments of that church, and the ministry of that church. Okay? So you have the Anglicans who say it's essay. So what they would say is that, well, look, for Methodists, Presbyterians, and so forth, that denomination only participates in the church insofar as it holds all four of those. So maybe in some it has three, in some it has two. In, in, in some denominations you have one. They might hold the, the faith and the Trinity and the Incarnation, but they've rejected the sacraments and, you, you, you know, and the apostolic succession and the creeds or something. But they have the essence of it or, you know, the creedal faith. Um, so those have been the two positions. Benny essay is, look, it's for the well-being of the church, but we're not unchurching those who are outside of it. And then the essay, which has said, no, you know, look, we're sorry. If you choose to separate yourself from the ordained ministry that has come to us from Scripture in the early church, we're sorry, but that, that's, that's not cool. <laughs> which is the theological term, I believe, that was used. Uh, um, that, that's not cool. If you choose to do that, 
Um, that's up to you, but we're not going to pretend that the ordained ministry that you have is, is a, a, a valid ministry. This is valid. This is what we know. In general, between the Benny essay side over here and the essay side over here, there still was an agreement that we don't want to really get into arguments, though, of those who are outside the apostolic succession. We don't want to get into the arguments of, well, you're valid but illicit, or valid, licit, and irregular. These are all terms that Rome uses, by the way. Or invalid, illicit, irregular, and a little weird. Okay, we don't want to get into all of those arguments. What we have said, whether it's more Benny essay, although some of them will say, oh, it's, it's valid out, out there. It's valid. Okay, but in general, whether you're Benny essay or your essay, we have said, look, if, if a Methodist pastor comes in and says, am I valid? We say, look, we don't get into that. It seems evident that God's grace works through you, but we're not going to get into you're valid or you're irregular or you're illicit or make all these judgments. We know what we know. We know what we've received. We leave the rest to the mystery of God. Okay? This is pretty similar to the Eastern Orthodox position. They, they're famous for saying, we know where the church is. We don't know where she ends. Okay? Um, it's almost like being in downtown Marlboro, and uh, you just came here, and they give you a sign, and you look around there, and this is Marlboro around. And then you go walking for someone, and you realize you've walked about five miles, and you say, wow, am I still in Marlboro? Well, I know I was in Marlboro when I was at the center of town. I'm not sure where Marlboro ends. You, you know, that's kind of the Eastern Orthodox. So it allows, uh, uh, what, what it says is that, look, we are bound by the order of the church and the sacraments of the church, God isn't. <laughs> we are, he isn't. He can do what he wants. But we are bound by this. This is what we know. So it leaves where Rome gets into um, valid and, uh, or invalid, licit and illicit, regular and irregular in their determination um, uh, of orders. We don't get into that, okay? So in Anglicanism, like Eastern Orthodoxy, whether it's more Benny essay, that it's for the well-being, or whether it's essay, that it's for you to be the church, you need the apostolic succession, we still have shied away from proclaiming judgment on what happens outside of it. Is everyone with me so far? Okay. Where that's been a little bit different, however is that this side over here in Benny essay will say, well, at the time of the Reformation, there were some continental uh, ministers who came over and, and took services. This side will say, yeah, when we found out about it, we put a stop to it. <laughs> okay, read the preface to the ordinal. That they, they can't function here, okay? Um, and over on this side would say, well, okay, so we won't allow them to function at our altars, but we're, you know, yes, they are, they're, they're legitimate out there. But in practice, we, it, go, it does lean, I would say, towards the essay. And this is why. Terence McGillicuddy comes to me and says, I'm a priest, I want to live it out in Anglicanism. And I go to the bishop and eventually his orders are recognized by our bishop, received and licensed. 
Michael Bickford comes to me and says, I'm a minister of the gospel for 15 years and I want to be a priest. He's ordained. Okay? So in practice, I would say we lean a little bit this way towards essay in practice. Okay? But there really is a, a, a spectrum between Benny essay, this is for the well being of the church, and essay, no, this is of the essence of the church. So, you may say, well, where do we stand as a province, the ACNA? Does anyone want to say? Sort of in the, in the middle. First of all, this is very early church in some ways. Even though I'm a little uncomfortable with one of the extremes, um, you know, the early church said, look, we're not going to define things in any exhaustive way. We're going to establish parameters. And I've used this before, the ballroom dancing. You know, you can dance anywhere you want, over here, and you can move over here, okay? What you can't do is go outside the room, okay? So it's the same thing like with the, the, the person of Christ. You can emphasize his divinity, and you can go and emphasize his humanity, right? But you can't go out here where you, you, you're emphasizing the humanity of Jesus at the expense of his divinity and be like a Jehovah's Witness, for example, okay? Um, or uh, 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 someone who believes in monophysitism over here, you emphasize the divinity at the expense of his humanity. You have to be within the realm, and Anglicanism allows that Although in practice we lean this way, in charity we've often leaned this way. Where do, we, uh, where do we come down as a province? In a term uh, put forth, I believe, by uh, Bishop Ray Sutton, who you all know that name because you read his book, didn't you, on baptism, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. Um, and um, Bishop Ray Sutton put forth uh, the, the phrase, plenty essay which is, is a way of saying, let's, let's bring in the walls a, a little bit here. Let's bring them in and avoid the real extremes. And it means to be the fullness of the church. To be the fullness. So it doesn't unchurch those out here who don't have it. But what it says is for you in your denomination, tradition, to be a full expression of the undivided church, you need to have the apostolic ministry. So the, in, if you look up on the ACNA website, the theological statement of the ACNA, what it reads re, regarding this is, and I've got to find it here now. Okay, it's number three, statement number three, theological statement of the ACNA. We confess the godly historic episcopate. Okay, first of all, they're saying that this office is godly, which means it's of God, right? And it's holy. If something is holy, it's been sanctified by God. We confess the godly historic episcopate. So that's the office of bishop, historic, uh, referring to the, the line of the episcopacy, as an, and here's the big word here, inherent part What's the word inherent mean? 
belongs to, right, and and really can't be separated out. It's inherent uh, to it. An inherent part of the apostolic faith and practice, meaning order. So it's the apostolic succession is an inherent part of the apostolic faith in practice. And therefore, as, and here's the next big word, integral. What's that mean? Woven into the fabric. Right, okay. It's, uh, It's integral to the fullness. There's the word, plenty essay, okay the fullness and unity of the body of Christ. So that's our position. I kind of like that position. Um, And the reason is um, that it allows for some mystery, but clearly says the ordained, the threefold order of ministry in the church is biblical, it's patristic, it's God's intention for his church. To fully be within the church as God intended is to maintain the threefold ordained ministry of the church. You know, I I like that. It doesn't completely hold the position of the of the extreme people on the SA side. We're in, you're out, and it doesn't really hold to the extreme position of the Benny SA people, which is um, we have it, they don't, and it's all good. <laughs> okay. What it really says is, look, um, this is what we have received and what we know. And to fully be the church today of the early church, uh, for today rather, uh, is to have this ministry of the church. I'll also quote from the theological statement of the ACNA. It says, the Anglican Communion, Archbishop Jeffrey Fisher wrote, has no peculiar, what does that mean in, in uh, more formal English? We don't usually use that word. Yeah, unique or particular, right? The Anglican communion has no particular. The Anglican communion has no peculiar thought, practice, creed, or confession of its own. It has only the Catholic faith of the ancient Catholic Church as preserved in the Catholic creeds and maintained in the Catholic and Apostolic Constitution of Christ Church from the beginning. It may licitly teach as necessary for salvation nothing but what is read in the Holy Scriptures as God's Word written, or may be proved thereby. It therefore embraces and and affirms such teachings of the ancient fathers and councils of the Church as are agreeable to the scriptures, and thus to be counted apostolic. And my favorite line, the church has no authority to innovate. It is obliged continually, and particularly in times of renewal or reformation, to return to, quote, the faith once delivered to the saints. Here endeth. The lesson. (laughs) Amen. I mean, and that's in our theological uh, statement. Yeah, thanks be to God. That's it. So so final uh, questions, thoughts, concerns.
challenges. Um, places where you think I'm just all wet. It's not like you can flunk the class. No one? Everything's clear as day? Very good. You know, like I said, would I love it if, if, if I changed everyone's mind? Of course. Uh, anyone who tells you that they don't care if they change your mind is lying to you. Um, and they're just trying to change your mind and use that as a tactic. Um, but what I'm really trying to do is not give, well, there's essay and Benny essay, and I want you to go out of here with essay. I'm trying to give the best argument I can of both positions. I mean, I'm using this as an example of anything I'm teaching, of both positions, and give you the tools as Anglicans to look at the scriptures, the fathers, and the Anglican formularies so that you can come to conclusions theologically and not just based on that makes sense to me or, you know, that's how I feel or that's what my priest taught me growing up because, you know, the only authority really is the Word of God. You know, what does God intend for His church?